The Intermediate Line advises a language and concept warning for the entire show. The Intermediate Line is brought to you by nervouswater.com.au. Thomas and Thomas Fly Rods, Shilton Fly Reels and Call and Fly Line. Power Pole, Total Boat Control. Ketterfly Apparel, from time on the water to you. Beast Brushes, we stay in our lane of experience to improve your experience. Andy, I know you don't understand technology well, mate, but I'm just going to let you know that we are recording and we're going away. Oh, I've got you. it here. Chris is recording the call. It's come up. Yep. Oh, wow. Yep. Right well, up. it's hard to be called when we're sitting sitting in the studio, mate. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, smoke and mirrors. Not true. Smoke and um, mirrors. Okay. Days. Welcome back to another episode, folks. And with me, I have uh, an old friend of mine, the Baron of Blend 43, Andy Bockler. <laughs> Hey mate, how you going? Bound of bleeding forty three. Oh my god! <laughs> you spark up there, brother. No, nah, mate. No, nah, I just uh, I don't know what I did. I just put a bottle of water down and uh, yeah, took a few cool. deep breaths. Thought I heard the old bick um, getting all um, sparked up. Anyway, it's all good, mate. Let's let's move on from there. Yeah, uh, cool, mate. How you been? All right. Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Andy. And yourself, awesome. mate. You've just come back from. Um, from nine weeks of potato mode on Christmas Island, right? Nine weeks, mate. Yeah, <laughs> it was awesome. You know, funny thing is, mate, I start forgetting stuff around the house. Like this morning, I'm looking to make a cup of coffee. And I said to Deb, I said, look, I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but where's the coffee cups? And, <laughs> and yesterday, I jumped in the car and drove down to get some fuel. It was like, fuck, it's a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's awesome, mate. And I want to hear everything about... How uh, you know your mild brain damage worked over there, and how it's yep. coming back now while you're here. Yeah. But before we get going, I just want to do a couple of uh, Spono announcements. Sure. Um, you know, uh, from I'll people sit, that I'll look just sit after quietly. Yeah, what? of course, mate. I'll just sit quietly. Yeah, just sit here quietly, mate. You know, have, yeah. have you have you seen Al Simpson's um, Caterfly stuff before? I have actually, and um, they look great. A couple of guys uh, actually were wearing them over at the island, and they looked really good. Really good. Yeah. Some of his shirts and stuff like that. So yeah, it looked awesome. I can tell you that Doesn't... um that you know not only they look good, but uh mate, as 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 a as a member of the Northern European um um, um skin type, right? Mm, yeah. Um I'm very sensitive to to stun shirts and like mm. I've worn a lot of them. I don't mind. Mm. I'll spend whatever money it takes not to get rust, you know. Yeah, oh it's important. That's sort yeah. of you've got to have that stuff covered otherwise it's uh especially someone like yourself mate fair skinned yeah um yeah yeah, yeah. but the caterfly ones are the are the only ones i wear where I, don't, I don't get i don't get burnt through you know oh, is that right yep that right and yeah. and i will tell you that um you know al's got uh it, it, it makes me feel better that like 
out of all the apparel companies that that are available around that price range and that quality for uh, fly fishing, I'm pretty sure Caterfly is the only Australian-owned company that sells that stuff. You know, so I think you might um, be right. I think you might yeah. be right. Yeah, everything and, else. And is... it's in, you know, for someone who likes to perpetuate our industry and and our thing, and have someone you know sponsor comps and you know do our sort of stuff, and just you know, I think it's important to keep. Uh, consider keeping your, your coin here and uh, supporting an Australian uh, business, oh, no matter yeah, where you are. Like it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I not agree. Take, I'm not taking anything away from from local <clears throat> local economy anywhere, particularly when it comes to fishing. But uh, wherever you are, su- support local. And yeah. um, for a lot of people, that what they wear, you know, like um, you'd think they were living in China. Well, <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> living in China. Oh my god. <laughs> Anyway, um, so yeah, just wanted to uh, mention that Al's got some new designs that have come out, just yep. come out on his website. Go to caterfly.com and um, and check those puppies out. I think Al's designs are awesome. They're great. Yeah. Well, as I say, there's a few guys over at the island this season that were wearing them and uh, they looked really good. You know, I mean, I know it's fishing, not fashion, but at the end of the day, uh, they looked awesome and everyone raved about them, saying how good they were, how comfortable they were. So yeah, I'll have to get onto some, I think. Contact yeah. Al and get a batch of them. Might even get take a him, batch mate. over and give them to the guides over there or something like that. That'd be pretty yeah. cool. Another Australian braid, another another sponsor in the absence with the uh, another Australian owned and manufactured and designed company, who I know the owner quite well. Um, uh, so do you. Um, the Flatscraft range have just brought out um, foils. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yep. And and. Um, and you know, I just want to like uh, talk about those. I suppose a little bit there, like as you know, well. I mean, I'm talking to probably the person that would know um, the background of, of at least my tuna fishing probably better than most as well. Like been doing it for yeah. a long time. Yep. Um, the uh, the the ability to replicate frogmouth pilchards in in Australia is um is is a pretty uh, handy thing to be able to do when you're fishing for schooling fish like tuna or salmon or. Well, I think um, it's more important these days from pressured fish. You know, I mean, those fish are getting pressured every year, so mm. um, you've got to come up with something to even up the ledger. And um, yeah, those flies, I saw you put them up online the other day and had a look at them. They just look fantastic, mate. They look so good. Works of art. Works well, of the art. foils are nothing new, and mm. you know, I've got to give um, props to Bob Popovic who. Yep. Um, who, as people know, I've mentioned many, many times in this podcast as being yep. uh, Lord and Saviour. Uh, I really look up to that dude. But haven't been able to buy foils from um, from um, from Hairline for about a year, and that's the only supplier that that I know that you can buy them from. And it's uh just can't go without any longer. So just sort of redesign them a little bit, bigger yep. eyes, bigger gills, some uh, yep. pre colours on there, and um, it's hard, hard to hard to improve on um, on what was already so good. So, mm, mm, but now no, got them here. Yeah, excellent. Get on yeah, um, and uh, just one more: the the power pole move motors uh, should be here in the country. Uh, this podcast we're recording today is going to go out today, and again, okay. apologise for it being a day late, listeners. But um, you know, that's I guess you'll just have to deal with that with your free podcast. Um, yeah, well, look, you know, that's it. Just you know, have a good look in the mirror and get over <laughs> yourself, basically. <laughs> go to bed with the mirror and wake up. Go, wake right. up to yourself. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the new move motor comes out. I'm uh, pretty excited about that. Should have that one bolted onto my boat by um, this time next week. So oh, it's um, cool. Cool. pretty exciting. Yeah, you've forgotten about where I live, have you, mate? Uh, yeah, I have actually. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just um, I'll tell you what, just just send me through the GPS coordinates, mate. I and, will. Um, I and will. Just wait by the letterbox. I usually I show up about 11.30 p.m. Yep, cool. Mate. I'm not That's there it. within half an hour, I won't be far away. 
That's all right, mate. No worries. I'll sit there and wait. I'm a patient man, as you know. Yes, sweet. No worries. <laughs> There's nothing like being early to the water, mate. Oh, mate, I've got all the time in the world. Speaking of all the time in the world, let's talk about island time. So, Island time. You only just got back from Christmas Island. Uh, I did. Christmas Island on... in the Pacific, to be specific. Yep. Uh, I, you told me 3 o'clock on Saturday morning. Uh, yeah, Friday. somewhat. Yeah, yeah, I had a flight delay out of Fiji, um, which is not unusual to be expected these days for some reason. But that's okay. I hooked up with a couple of guys and their wives who were one of my last groups there. We had a pretty nice day. Hang on a minute, Andy. Let me just stop you on the wording there. Hooked uh -huh. up with a couple of the guys and their wives. Oh, mate. Maybe just uh, we'll rethink that wording. I can edit that out if you like. Yeah, do it. Met up with. <laughs> Met up with. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, sorry, arranged right. to meet with arranged to meet organized with uh coordinated yeah. with uh, liaised with whatever strike hooked up from the record yeah please. yeah strike and we ended up going down to uh Denarau, which is i don't know if you know Denarau, it's the major harbor just outside of nandy um we're all the tourist boats is that like Denarau? well same place yeah i think Denarau, okay. Denarau, tomato <laughs> tomato potato potato <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was great, actually, because we spent the afternoon smacking Bloody Marys and eating seafood marinara, which was just absolutely fantastic. Cool. Um, after nine weeks on the island, not to say that the food over there wasn't great. It was very good. Um, but, yeah, you know, you sort of tend to crave for something a little bit more richer, a little bit spicier. You know, I've, I've come to know to take in a couple of bottles of Tabascos and chilli sauces and stuff like that, you know. Mm. I mean, white rice is white rice, but you can tart it up a bit with a bit of flavouring and stuff like that. But no, as I say, mate, all in all, a great uh, nine weeks. But I will say I've still got a group over there, actually. So the finish of my season is on Wednesday. There's a group of 17 came in the day I was leaving. But I knew that anyway. And the guy who's looking after those has been there a few times, pretty experienced. So I've left him to do all the bloody uh, behind-the-scenes work that I normally do over there. And um, as far as I can ascertain... Uh, with some messages as recent as last night, things are going great. So, yeah, good, mate, good. But it yeah. is good to be home, mate. It is good to be home, that's for sure. So, Andy, I think uh, – I can't remember the first year I personally went to Christmas Island, but yeah. when I went there the first time, I think it was – it feels like it was, I don't know, um, early – 2000s sometime. Yeah, I think it was yeah. about 2005, 2006, I think. I was was it that way? Off. I feel it was before 2005, but – uh, could have been, could have been. I, I remember I was in there for my first week, I think, and then you came in the week I was leaving. Um, That's right. So, so I think it was about two thousand. Could have been two thousand and five, um, or around about that time. Possibly. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that was that was back uh, when the mini hotel is that still there? By the way. Nah, Matt. That um, crashed and burned many many years ago. You're telling um, me that Area Extra wasn't the businessman he made out to be? No, no. He turned out to not have the best bone fishing lodge on the island, as he touted. But, um, <laughs> but look, at the end of the day, I mean, that first trip in there, we, we none of us knew any different. We were just happy to be there, really, when you think about it. And yeah. we, we sort of thought um, initially, well, this is what it is, you know. Um, you know, but we're here to fish, so um, all in all, it was, it was a great... Uh, a great experience, first cab off the rank, and um, but as you know, things have sort of changed a bit since then, and so forth. So now, uh, as you know, and as a lot of people know, I'm heavily involved with the villagers' bone yeah, fishing lodge no, over there. For sure, we'll get to that, mate. Okay, Look, mate. What I'm what I'm trying to um, uh, point out, Your Honour, is that um, 
<laughs> is uh, is how long you, you've been going there for? Um, uh, mate, seventeen years. So uh, yeah, well, if it's um, well, if it's um, this would be eighteen if I was two thousand and five. Um, yep, eighteen. Yeah, okay. Yep. So right, mate. I'll do the maths here. Thanks. Uh, you've just come back from from um, an island, so that's totally understandable, Andy. Where are the coffee cups, so to speak? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, um, so look, mate. I guess um, I guess what I'm, I'm I'm leading towards, I suppose, is um, you know, how you got involved with the villages. I know we've had, had on the podcast before, but I, I don't think we've actually talked about like what okay. led you to become uh, an Australian agent there you know okay. and what what that okay. what that involved because you and i i mean i've been to the villages as well and when i went there you i don't think you were the agent at that time you know so you, no you no must... i think the first time we went there was we, we, we'd been i think that particular year i was staying and i'm thinking it might have been 2006 maybe 2007 maybe no um, I, my, uh well I've been there I was twice on the, to the villages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was times. on my I was on my second trip and I stayed at the villages, and um, uh, and it only just been pretty much built. And all we had then was two rooms, room number one and two, and one boat. Mm. Um, and it's just sort of morphed into what it is today, which is we can accommodate twenty, and uh, we've got access to five boats. So um, it's just sort of. I guess organically grown as more and more people come there. But to cut a long story short, um, I went there the first time. Um, I can't remember who it was with, and it was really good. So we decided to go back a second time. And the manager at the time was a gentleman by the name of Kirar and lovely bloke. Still on the island, I saw him uh, this time around. Lovely guy, and we were just chatting. And he said to me, he "said Andy, we're looking for a Australian agent to look after that part of the world. Are you interested?" Okay. In and I sort of thought, okay. Um, and I said to him, I said, look, I am interested, but I was still working full time back here in Oz at the time. And I said, leave it with me um, and I'll get back to you. Just give me a month or so. And he said, yeah, that'll be fine. So I came home and I uh, contacted Niall, Niall Logan, very good friend of mine. Hmm. Um, and you know Niall. Um, I know one, Niall. One, yep. one, of, one of nature's true, genuine blokes. Top and, bloke. Um, very much so. Very much so. And uh, I said, look, this is on the table um i'm working full time i just can't manage to do 100 percent involvement um in it um would you be interested and he said yeah i would so we flew back in um for a week and i introduced niall to kiraran and when i say introduce niall to kiraran the way it works over there man is is it's uh, the villages is church-owned uh community community based sort of stuff so i i Today I deal with nine representatives of the church. Eight of them are um, just uh, directors of the board and number nine is the chairman of the board. So these are the people we have been dealing with for over the years. So to cut a long story short, um, we accepted the position um, and Niall primarily was the driver of the whole thing. I was always in the background um, doing what I do and assisting with Niall. Um, so let's move forward to 2017, I think it was. Mm. And Niall and I always had an agreement that when it came time for me, when I finished full-time work, that I would then become the main driver. And that's how it happened. So in 2017, um, Niall said to me, he said, right, you're it. And um, away we went sort of stuff. Niall remains in the background to a degree, but he's got other interests happening now. 
Um, so primarily he's slowly stepped away from the whole thing. So basically since 2017, um, I'm primarily the Australian agent and uh, moving forward. Um, that's, how it's, that's how it is. So that's just a quick overview on, on how it all happened, mate. So uh, Interfly now, is that yep. Niall, Niall not involved with Interfly now? Not at all, no, no. See, Interfly is an old business, isn't it? Like, well, Interfly, Interfly was a business that Niall had um, 10, 12 years ago, I suppose. <clears throat> and well, when, Longer than that. Yeah, quite possibly. And it, when, it, when in 2017 um, we sort of changed roles, um, he contacted me and he said, look, he's just had a look on wherever you look and said that business is still available um, for ownership if you want it. And I said, yep, I'll grab that. Made sense to me. Um, and that's that's how that happened. So um, Interfly now is 100% solely mine. Yeah, okay. Because yeah. Interfly was around when, mate, like in the late 90s, I, I remember it like it's, uh, it was it was like it was his tuition, like his casting stuff. And No, no, he's, he's try on fly. Try on fly, that's it. Sorry, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, Interfly was a little subsidiary business that Niall had going that was dealing with some travel in Australia, primarily right. the weeper trips on the houseboats, um, on okay. the motherships and stuff like that. Yeah, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so that no, was basically it. But no, he is still in um, Try on fly, that's his business. And Niall still does tuition and a few bits and pieces like that. Um, mm -hmm. And look, at the end of the day, um, he's always there in the background that I bounce ideas off him and and consult with him, I suppose. Mm. Um, I mean, Noel's a smart guy, as you know. And, yeah. uh, but he was extremely instrumental in the early years of the Villagers' Lodges in, in getting things sort of up to speed and up to spec sort of stuff. And I've basically just come in in 2017 and continued on. So yeah. I do owe a lot to Noel. I mean, people should really thank Noel for the efforts <clears throat> and um, that he put into to the lodge in the early days to get it to a stage where I've sort of haven't just waltzed in, um, but you know it it, it 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 came to me as a very very organised uh, operation, and um, I've just um, over the last you know since twenty seventeen have have made an effort to improve that um, operation, and always in the back of my mind regardless is is the benefit that um that we provide to the local community there um who obviously benefit by the the, the, the fishermen coming not only to the villages of course but to christmas island itself it's a huge part of their economy there and uh you know I, I never lose sight of the fact that um you know i'm doing this for a lot of reasons but one of the main reasons i'm doing it is just to help out the local community there um yeah. we're, we're based in a village called tabakaya um, there's a community there of about 2,800 people. So they're the ones primarily who benefit from, from um, uh, fishing going to the villages. But overall, the whole island benefits from it. Uh, and collectively, between myself and the other lodges, it's a major part of their income, which they sorely missed over the COVID period. And uh, But yeah. now it's, it's all back up and running. It's um, been going great so far. All so right. So, yeah. so, to, so to back up there, I, I, I need to, I want to interject and say that, you know, like the, we're talking about Niall there, probably mm -hmm. just a quick statement. Like he's probably one of the most undersung fosterers of fly fishing development in Australia. 100%. Mile. Like 100%. Unbelievable what he's, what he's done in the background for uh, thankless, thankless efforts and, and oh, never yeah. ever put himself out there as being like a, a, a person to – to, to associate the name with what he's done with, you know? So. No, look, he's very humble, flies a little bit under the radar. He's not the sort of guy that has got an ego. He doesn't thrive, doesn't need to have 
accolades or anything um, showered upon him. He just goes about what he does and I will say what he does, he does extremely well and correct, you know, there's a lot of people should be uh, very thankful of Niall's input into the fly fishing industry in Australia. There's no doubt about that. And Absolutely. to the development of the the, the fly fishing um, scene over there on Christmas Island as well. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, you you went on to talk about um, um, the 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 um, uh, the the hierarchy, if you like, in in within the villages, if you yep. if you want to put it that way. Yep. So being a church thing and a community based operation, is the village is, is like seems like a, a non profit for the island. Well, pretty much. Um, yeah. Look, you know, I mean. A lot of the other lodges, and don't get me wrong, there's some very good lodges over there, um, but they're more sort of commercial-centric, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, there's 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 fees that are taken out. Um, um, well, like all but, non-profits, right? Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. running costs, you know, there's the, the guys who get paid and, the boats. And, yeah, exactly yeah. right, you know, and uh, wages. I mean, we've got, uh, including guides, this is going to blow you, blow you away, um, there's nearly 80 people on staff at the villages. Well, that's giving the community employment, really. Well, it, yeah, and we only Creating employ industry. we only employ people from the community of Tabakea. Um, so I know that the wages that say get paid to either the guides or let's say the reception girls, not only are they looking after their family um, with that sort of coin, um, I know and have witnessed firsthand that they're also looking after their brothers family or their sister's family um, and so forth and yeah I was very pleased to find out because one of my main worries I guess sitting back here in Australia when they're all borders are closed or flights weren't going in and thinking geez how are these people surviving over there sort of stuff mm -hmm. um, it was very comforting to know or to find out that they were looked after um, the church provided um, for their needs and um, over that sort of non-income period. Um, so, yeah, basically being a community-based thing, it just filters down through the community in Tabakaya, but ultimately it also filters down into the general community as well. So I really like that business model. I really like that type of uh um, way they go about it, and I probably would have to say that's one of the reasons why I, I'm proud to be attached to it. It's great. Yeah, look, uh, if you're listening now and you want to get to the fishing, we're getting there, okay? But um, <laughs> but at the same time, I think there's a lot of people that, that have been to Christmas Island that have connected with the community and the, the guides that have been there. They've, everyone's got not only memories if you've been there to, of Christmas Island, but the people that you meet there and stuff like that. So it's, I think it's interesting to talk about that. And, and last time we had it on the show, we talked about what was happening because we, we couldn't get there. Um, mm. Now that you've been there, um, mm. you know, and you've had a bit more of a, a firsthand experience of talking to people rather than one person is reporting back about it. Mm. What was the general, um, you know, feel or vibe going on there whilst COVID was happening? What, as far as what they were doing? Well, how they were, you know, how they were getting by with like how oh, much they were, they were, no one, no one being there, and no, well, no, no tourists, I should say, being there. Yeah, or, look, I mean, they just probably much reverted back to sort of like the subsistence type of living. Um, they'd go out and they'd go fishing and you know catch some tunas or go and up the back of the lagoon and catch a batch of what they call snappers. Um, but which are really just like a little Janet Janet sort of stuff. Um, yeah. So, you know, they, they're very resourceful over there. Um, they picked coconuts. Um, they spent a lot of their time just chilling with family. I think there was a baby boom over there. 
for, mm. for whatever. But look, they, they got by, mate. Um, they have their support within the community. And that's one of the, the, the good things about over there is they all look after each other. If someone's yeah. doing it a bit tough, come on in, have a meal with us, whatever the case may be, you know. So um, it's a real it's, solid sense of community, right? It sure is, mate. It, it, mm. it's, it's it's really good, and like, you know, um, I've just had 150 guys through there this season, which was fantastic. And look, my wish or hope before the season was not only these guys and and their partners. I had quite a few um, ladies in there this season. Um, not only have a good uh, time with the fishing and have some good fishing, but also at the end of the week, I sort of hope that they also had an appreciation of just how beautiful these people are and how accommodating they are and how friendly they are and you know how happy they are, considering that they really don't have much compared mm. with what we have back here in 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 Wally World. Um, and uh, every one of them walked away with that appreciation. So I was really really happy. That um, that they managed to, I guess, embrace that experience as well. Other than just the fishing, they just um, everyone just couldn't believe how beautiful and accommodating and friendly and they were. And um, you know, for me, that's 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 fantastic that people recognise that as well. Really, yeah, yeah. When was it? When did people start coming back to Christmas Island? Well, um, the first flight landed there on the 2nd of May. Um, there was quite a few delays. Their, their borders opened up there in August 22, but and that was open, but no flights were, were in there. So mm. there was a few seafarers, like dudes on yachts cruising around that were able to go there, but the majority, you know, 99% of you know, the, the fishermen, tourists, whatever you want to call, <clears throat> didn't get in there until the 2nd of May after many, many delays from Fiji Airways. Um, I mean, the flights were to commence on the 2nd, sorry, the 7th of December nine, in 2022, <clears throat> but they were delayed till March and then delayed and delayed. And reasons for that were pretty varied. Um, but at the end of the day, um, <clears throat> there just had to be some recertification done at some of the equipment up at Cassidy International and a few bits and pieces and stuff like that. Gotcha. So it was the 2nd of May when the first flight hit the ground sort of stuff so leading into my season it was quite a <clears throat> logistical challenge that started at least 12 months out in just lining everything up and making sure that <clears throat> supplies food water um boats everything was up to spec and i will say that the villagers were way ahead of the game um as far as that was concerned and fortunately they were financial enough to be able to get all that stuff stuff organized oh, yeah. and so forth yeah that would be um that's that's a pretty interesting point i guess if you could oh, say mate, it was a logistical challenge from everyone sort of stuff and here's me sitting back in australia going holy crap is this going to happen you know mm. i mean it was actually four years to the day pretty much that i arrived back on christmas island four years and everyone's going like wow where did that time go but to their credit um the villagers absolutely nailed it as far as getting it ready for us um mm. but i was very fortunate that on the 2nd of May, right through most of May and early June, um, there was groups of Americans coming in from Howard, our, our uh, counterpart booking agent up in Florida. <clears throat> and um, in a perfect world, I would have loved to have got to Christmas Island, say, in February, March of this year, just to get eyes on the ground and see how things were travelling. Um, but that wasn't possible. But I was very fortunate that 
quite a few of the guys that were coming in from America I knew just through social media um, and I reached out to them and I said, look, guys, if you can do me a favour, go and enjoy your week, but can you give me the heads up on how things are travelling when you get back? And every one of them came back and said, sweet, no problems at all, Andy. Everything's pretty much back to normal, not quite. You know, there's still a few little things that need tweaking and there's still a few little things that still need tweaking. So it gave me a, a huge amount of confidence to know that, that um, despite all of the assurances that I'd been given, from management and so forth over there over a 12-month period. Um, and we basically had run through a series of checklists and what was required, what was expected sort of stuff. Um, I was very, uh, very comfortable in the knowledge knowing that when I get in there with my first group, we'll be pretty much hitting the ground running. <clears throat> and that's exactly what happened. You know, that's mm. exactly what happened. So as far as the logistical side of the things, we were way ahead of the game. Um, probably, probably the most advanced ahead of the game than any of the other lodges on the island. But um, as I say, I just congratulate the management and the staff at the villages for, uh, for for getting all that sort of squared away because it wasn't easy for them either, um, mm. as you could appreciate, you know. But, um, but yeah, it, it happened and um, it was a fantastic season. Really, really good season. Really good. Well, let's talk about that. Was it... Yeah. Um when you when you think of a place like Christmas Island that's been sh shut down for for four years, yep, was it? Well, I was four years since you went been there. How long was it shut? Oh, it's pretty just much to shut touch down on that. for three and a half years, I suppose. Three and a half years. Well, yeah, even I mean, half. even a year. Like I mean, yeah, to, yeah. to have no one, no one pressuring those flats for that time. Mm. Mm. What was the biggest standout in the fishing? The difference in the fishing, or anything that it proved, or, or do you think it had? Uh, regressed Look, or the fish's no. behaviour had changed or anything like that? Well, initially, um, once again, I didn't know what to expect, but reports that I was getting from guys who had been in there were sort of saying that the fishing's really good. But what, the main thing that um, was noticeable for me, I mean, it took a while to get back into the swing of things. I mean, we had pretty crap weather for about the first week and a half. I'm talking like shit weather. I'm talking like major rain. It was apocalyptic um it was black like the horizon was black and we had quite a bit of rain so that sort of tends to dick around with the water temperatures in the lagoon and all that sort of stuff so the first week and a half two weeks were really no indication at all it was very hard i mean we still caught fish the guys still caught fish mm. but it was really hard to sort of get a handle on it but as the sort of you know, the lagoon settled down and water temperatures started to adjust with a few um, a spring tide flushing clean water in there and some sunny days. The water gets back to normal. <clears throat> the flats get back to normal. Then it was all things started to happen. And the first thing that I noticed <clears throat> um, particularly and a lot of the other guys noticed was the actual size <clears throat> of the bones. Um, like, there was a time there, as you know, Chris, that you'd go to Christmas Island and, you know, you'd have 30 fish days fairly regularly, but a lot of those fish were padded out with one two-pound little pingers sort of stuff mm. um, of maybe 20, and then the other 10 were a split between two and three-pound fish. Mm. Um, there was very few little fish there this time. Um, and so, you know, your numbers may not have been 30 fish a day, um, your numbers on average might have been 15, 18 fish a day, but every one of them was anywhere between five and eight pounds. Um, yeah, that's nice. Uh, yeah. Now, 
whichever way you look at it, whichever way I look at it, that's got to be looked upon as pretty damn good bone fishing, world class. When you can go out into the lagoon confidently knowing that you're going to be hoiking flies at four, five, six, eight, seven, whatever pound fish and a few pushing nine um, and come home with 15 or 18 of those under your belt, um, that's bloody good bone fishing in my, my books. Um, mm. And a lot of the guys who um, had been there multiple times, like I'm talking 10-year veterans, whatever, of going there that I had quite a few of um, over this season, all agreed that um, best bone fishing they'd ever had there sort of thing. So but if you're going to go along there today and expect to get 30, 40 fish a day every day, you're going to be disappointed, simple as yeah. that. But well, if you go along there and you're a bit more mature about your fishing yeah. and you know that you're going to get 10, 15, 20 really nice bone fish, that's great fishing. That's really good fishing. So that well, was the main thing I noticed over there was the size of the fish. Yeah. Um, had definitely increased. Yeah, I was just going to say that, um, you know, it really depends on your on your outlook on what good fishing is yeah. for, a lot, for a lot of people. Yeah, uh, you know, and and you would argue that people that have been to Christmas Island more more than once, or or have done a lot of saltwater fly fishing, uh, in general, um, the idea of, of of hunting those larger fish mm. for for less, you know, capitalising on on less opportunity as opposed to pinging, you know, twenty twenty fish that are you know twenty centimetres long, you know, yeah, yeah, it's um it's so much more appealing. Uh, well, look, you know, I mean, it 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 it's um. It's a bit more technical. I mean, you know, you've got to bring your A game. I don't care what anyone says. You know, wandering around on the flats at Christmas Island, throwing flies and expecting to get 30 fish a day. In any any situation, um, look, it can happen. There's no doubt about that. And there's certain flats there that if someone says, Andy, I just want to catch a shite ton of fish, well, we'll put you down on the nursery flats, knock yourself out sort of stuff. But those who um, – and that's fantastic to be able to do that still for the – first timers you know to get them introduced to it but even the first timers who did that basically saw what was happening and everyone else was sort of going like yeah we got 15 here's a couple of photos some eight pounders are sort of going like wow we want some of that so even those first timers they picked out in the first couple of days of their trip and you know got 30 bones a day under their belt um then started to sort of progress into the more technical side of it and it is technical i mean when you're chasing a seven or eight pound bone tail and away in ankle deep water um you've got to set it's yourself up shot. it's mate it's a one-shot deal most yeah. times um so you know you've got to spend the time just setting yourself up and whatever and if you get it right it's so rewarding if you get it wrong the fish will tell you yeah. um, <laughs> so you know a lot of the guys who are first timers who came in there they all left christmas island um better fly fishing there's no doubt about that and um yeah it was it was just fantastic really really good bone fishing so i mean in 17 years that i've been going there my thoughts my opinion is 18 18 sorry <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my thoughts are that it's the best best um bone fish i've ever experienced over there and i thought is it just me thinking this so i made a point of asking some of these guys who are you know very experienced christmas island fishing um fishermen and women and they all agreed they just say Andy we can't believe how good this is so yeah mm. uh, I was sort of that's basically a, what the difference has been I mean you know there's always been um larger fish there um there's always been larger fish there but the larger fish tended prior to 2019 2020 shutdown 
tended to be hanging on the edges, not far from the deep water, and they were difficult to approach and one false move and they'd just slink off the flat and you wouldn't see them again. You would have experienced that. Yeah. The difference, one of the main differences now is those same fish, the six-pounders, the seven-pounders, are actually up actively on the flats, like in the middle of the flat, <clears throat> doing what they're doing. So they were, I guess, easier fish to target, but there was enough of them there um, to target them sort of stuff. And um, that's what people tended to do. And uh, every night um, after fishing, the guys would all come back and there'd be tales and photos of, you know, five, six, eight-pound bones. Um, that was fairly regular, fairly regular sort of stuff. It got to a stage where, you know, before shutdown 2019, um, if you caught a three-pound fish, it was like, whoa, need a photo of this one. It's not a, not a bad one. Now it's like, yeah, we'll let that one go and we'll get a photo of a five-pounder or a six-pounder, knowing that that opportunity will come and knowing that that will happen. So there was a good they amount call that, of – They call that Taylor Swifting. Shake it what? off. Shake it off, yeah. yeah. But it was great fun. <laughs> no, it was really, really good. Um, so hopefully moving forward it will remain that way. Um, time will tell, of course, whether or not those fish will then get a bit smarter – as more and more fishermen go there, will go back to their normal habits. Who knows? That could well and truly happen. But I see moving forward in the near future, um, the fishery is in really good condition and really good nick, and the, the fish themselves are in beautiful condition, really, really beautiful condition. Obviously, there's a lot of food around, and um, they're capitalising on that. And, um, yeah, it's, as I say, all in all, mate, it was... Um, Absolutely outstanding bone fishing in my books, and a lot of others have come to that conclusion as well. Really good. Andy, what do we know about the growth rates of the bonefish in on Christmas Island? Is it unique to other growth rates around the the world? Mate, look, I honestly don't know, and no one does. Um, this is the thing. While I was there, I got contacted by a couple of uh, um, doctors, marine biologists, whatever you want to call them, based out of Noumea. And there was a Dr. Carolina Garcia. She came across and she sought me out and wanted to have a chat. But that was more along the benefits of the socioeconomic side of the bone fishery uh, to the <clears throat> to the local community there. But following her up was a group of um, marine scientists who came in, and they were there to try and establish the start of a study on just exactly what you're talking about. What is going on in this lagoon? What are the growth rates? Um, what are the fish populations and all that sort of stuff? And look, it's very early days and all that information probably won't be forthcoming. <clears throat> I don't know, it could be another five or six years or something like that. But there's definitely a focus over there uh, on the fisheries. Um, there's no doubt about it um, for whatever reason. Um, there's definitely a focus on the further protection and just trying to get a handle on what's happening out there uh, in the lagoon as far as these fish are concerned. Um, and it was a pretty well-timed visit by some of these fisheries people because the local fisheries um, department are currently in the progress of redrafting their management program um, <clears throat> to improve the management of the fishery. So it was good timing that these people were there um, and that I was there and it was I had a little bit of input with the fisheries over the time I was there just chatting to them about it. I mean, bear in mind all of the stuff I'm saying and all the stuff currently is it's just all anecdotal, you know. 
people are asking me the question, well, you know, what's the average size of fish like? And I'm telling them that, well, the average size of fish has well increased since 2019. And they say, why do you think that is? And I don't know, you know. I don't know. I haven't got any yeah. scientific data to give you. Um, it's basically anecdotal. It's just through observation. And, you know, and those fly fishermen, um, I guess, you know, we all um, have some valuable input in any of our fisheries, but particularly over there, um, you know, I mean, fly fishermen in general, as you know, they sort of take on the role as being custodians of their environment in a way. So we are sort of already protecting the environment over there in a way, but um, there's a very big database of uh, very experienced fly fishers who have been over there many, many times who that can be tapped into for anecdotal type of evidence, but it's basically up to the scientific dudes, you know, the nerds to, to work through that, and that's pretty much what they've started doing when I when I was there. So that could be a five-year project before anyone knows. So I guess in answer to your question, don't know. I say Fair to enough. the guides, you know, what's the growth rate? What's what's the, and they all go, oh, they breed like rabbits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the only reason you the know. reason I asked that question, like to take us way, way back, um, yeah, was that um, you mentioned earlier before I asked that question about the larger fish being more comfortable up on the flats as opposed yep. to just being, you know, feeling the pressure of a human presence and and bailing off to the edge. There, there's no yep. doubt that those larger fish back in back before COVID would have been feeding up on those flats and saw it as a food source, but also at the same time were probably hyper-aware of the, uh, you know, they've probably been pricked before, essentially, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, for so, sure. Yeah. So what yeah, I was I wondering, think... I suppose, was that these larger fish that are showing up on the flats right now, you know, they yep. possibly could have been the same fish back four years before people were there, and I'm using four yep. as a, a, a loose term, um, yep. that would have been comfortable being up on the flats and had no reason to have fear of humans, uh, you know, until... Well, it'll probably it'll probably evolve that way again, but that's just that's just um, behavioral changes in in a, adaptation to uh, you know uh, look, humans I, I being agree, predators, I, I suppose, if you like. Yeah, look, I have no doubt that the six and seven pound fish that we were seeing and catching were the three, maybe four pound fish that were there in twenty nineteen. Well, that's that's what I'm that's yeah. To, no, I have no just trying to ascertain that by understanding yeah. the growth rates, but yeah. we don't know. Like no, saying. I have no doubt that that's the case. I just don't think these six seven pound fish were you know teleported there, and all of a sudden they're there. They've always been there. But yeah, I think I think the <laughs> the, the natural you, progression. You reckon? Is, but yeah, but the natural thing is, is I think those three four pound fish that we were fishing to four years ago are now the six seven eight pound fish so the growth rates are obviously very very good um there must be some yeah. you know and they've been in a good paddock and they've been unharassed um so they had more time to get up on productive flats and feed and whatever and breed and whatever the case may be um so as i say it's going to be interesting to see what will happen in the next 12 months or you know um i'll be able to make a bit more of a I guess a, an observation on that when I get back there in 2024 as to what the behaviour is like and so forth. I mean, initially when I got there, they were dumb. They were seriously, seriously dumb. This uh, year? Was, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, initially when I got there, the first couple of weeks, um, you could hit them on the head, not the big ones, you know, you hit them on the head and they're gone anyway, but you're three or four pounders, you could hit them on the head and they'd turn around and scarp and then they'd come back and eat the fly. Mm. Um, so, but I also noticed... Um, as we got through week nine, week eight, week seven, whatever, and there had been a few more groups of fishermen coming through, not only at the villages but other lodges and stuff like that, that 
they were still a little bit dumb, but they were starting to get a little bit more selective mm. sort of stuff. So that's then when you really need to fine-tune your game and try and um, change your presentation, change your whatever. Um, they were still very catchable, but it then became uh, more of a challenge to do so. And those who did benefited from it, killed a pig. Those who couldn't adapt, yeah, they struggled a bit. But, you know, everyone's different in their approach to fishing in general and some of them just switch on to what's happening around them straight away, recognise it's all about observation. And um, so it'll be interesting to see when I get back there in this time next year um, if there has been any other changes, um, not only in the numbers, the size, but the fish behaviour sort of stuff. So... Well, along those lines, like uh, things like uh, the Paris Flats spawn and the full moon, did mm -hmm. that did that spread out to other flats without the pressure that's been going on? Or, or well, yeah, look, it always has. You know, the Paris spawn full moon usually happens within three days after the full moon, and everyone stands there on Paris number one up to their armpits and dredging for bones, basically. But they are big bones. I've always avoided that um not that there's anything wrong with it knock yourself i've done it it's just not your bag times. baby i get no, it not my bag I i've never done it to get down in the shallow stuff and hunt yeah. them out so um i've have found that leading up to that full moon period and then the three day after the full moon there is a definite sign of aggregation happening around that part of the lagoon so you know I'd always move further out into sort of, say, the flats that are not that far away from Paris, but within the vicinity, within a kilometre or something like that, which is flats like your Texas, your Smokies type of flats, Paris mm. 2, Paris 3, and there's always been um, a good selection of bigger fish on those flats when the Paris spawning thing has happened, and the same thing this year. Um, it was all going nuts down there at Paris 1 on the spawning Myself, Alfred, who you know, and his t boys team, Singapore, did exactly the same. We just wandered down to Paris number two, even Paris number three, which, actually, as you know, is a little bit further down the lagoon mm -hmm. and uh, fished the shallow stuff for big fish. Just just uh, on the Paris um, spawning thing, there's moves through the fisheries management to change the legislation and actually ban fishing Paris one for the spawning fish moving that's forward. Such, that's such a like, – I can't believe that's not already done. Oh, look, it, slowly, it, it makes a lot of sense, man. It makes yeah. so much sense. And they're going to – it hasn't been set in concrete yet. And, look, you know, this may put a few picture people out of the picture as far as going there because there are people that go there particularly for that. Um, so really? three, days, three days before the full moon till three days after the full moon. So that's going to be a six-day period. Let's call it a week. Mm. Well, there'll be no – fishing for bones in that Paris one area. It's not set in concrete yet, but there's talk about making that move. But in saying that, um, you know, these same guys who want to go and do that, I can get them to places at that same period where you're not fishing in that exclusion zone, you're fishing just outside of the exclusion zone, and you're still throwing flies at big bone fish. So it's not going to, I guess, be any detriment to the number of fishermen that are going to the island. But it's not say, going to affect the, the villages, essentially. No, no, of course not. Of course yeah. not. And um, you know, there might be the odd guy there that says, well, if I can't do the Paris spawning run, I'm not interested in coming to Christmas Island. 
I'll well, take his spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> um, I'll just go back to the next bloke in line sort of stuff. Uh, I yeah. doubt whether that's going to happen. You know, uh, I doubt whether that's going to happen. But if they do enforce that, I think it's a great thing. Oh, it has to be. I mean, hmm. as the uh, as fishing gets more and more popular anywhere in the world, the idea of, of targeting spawning fish in a in a fishing that's a fishing um, a recreational fishing scenario that is so impactful for the local community is just it's just madness. Why anyone? Well, it just would... doesn't seem to make sense to me. You know. Um, yeah. And I guess you know. That's probably one of the reasons why I've never really enjoyed going down there. I mean, it's just like it's just like shooting fish in a barrel, really. Um, and you know, you sort of got to wonder if you're catching the big breeding bonefish off the school, is that going to then impact on whether that fish actually breeds? Or, the thing or, is, we don't we don't know, right? No, I mean, no, exactly no one knows. Right. So why? So the the safest thing to do is to not do it. I think so until there's a bit more scientific data on what the impact of that may be. And I said to some of these fishery nerds that were down there, I said, if you really want a place to get started, you need to get down there and, you know, do some research, tag some fish, get some fins, whatever they do on these big spawning bones. Mm. Um, if you want to find, if you want a, a, a starting point in the lagoon, that's what I'd be doing sort mm. of stuff. Because I still think that, I mean, not every bone fish in the lagoon spawns at the same time not every bone fishing lagoon goes right oh, full moon couple of days let's head down to paris um that's not the case i don't think the entire population of the fish at christmas island lagoon spawn at the one time and i also firmly believe that some of the bigger fish that you catch there are actually not lagoon fish i think they come in from the ocean um and and to spawn in the lagoon and then because if you look at where paris one's located it's right at the entry. Yeah. Um, and um, why they go there in particular, don't know, but they do. And um, I'm, once again, nothing scientific evidence to back this up, but I'm pretty convinced that some of those bigger fish that come into spawn do come in from the deeper water, off the drop-off mm. sort of thing. Um, I mean, for example, you know the Korean wreck area, oh, um, yeah. which is way down the other side of the lagoon on the ocean side. There's yeah. heaps of bones down there, as you know. Yeah. I don't think those bones even think, right, let's swim around all the way around the island and head into Paris on the They might do, though. Well, they might. They might. You just yeah. don't know. So this is the sort of information that's got to be sorted out. But until such time, I agree. I think let's just give that place a rest over that spawning period mm. um, until we know a bit more about it. And uh, I think if the fisheries decide to enforce that, which I suspect they might, um, I can't see that as being a negative thing at all, mm. at all, for the, for the short term until they work out what's going on there, for sure. Yeah, okay. Mm. Cool. What's uh, what's angler prep been like uh, in comparison to um, recent years now? As far as what the well, it's I mean, it, I mean, Christmas Island is high on the um, on the on the trouty calendar. Like it's it's yep. a very very important part of uh, you know like the the thing to do throughout the year for a lot of people yep. um, when trout season might might be closed or, or what have you, yep. you know. Or, uh, well, I mean, not just trout, there's a lot of, lot of salty guys. Of sal I was going to well. yeah, I know, but I didn't finish what I was saying. I was getting there. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, Your Honour. I was just about to say that. <laughs> I mean, it's the season as well. I mean, no matter what you do, like that's when you go. You like well, it's it is. Yeah, so, but I mean, as you would, I'm sure you would know for well that. Uh, a dedicated trout fisherman is a different animal to someone who, who's dedicated with their saltwater fly fishing. You know, yeah, like yeah, but it may as well be two different sports. But yeah. 
there's probably a lot of similarities in in their prep. It doesn't matter where you're from. Like there's there's misinformation or or a, or a poor approach or a good approach. No matter where, what camp you're coming from, and yeah. I just want to see like um you know with the like like any form of fishing, there's a myriad of shit information out there. Oh and, look, you know, um, I mean, if you go to the local fly shop and get some flies tied for Christmas Island, you ask the dude, you know, how many times you've been to Christmas Island? Oh, I've never been there, but this is what I know. Um, well, you do so at your own peril basically um you know every I, I do my utmost to prep everyone as best as i can with some pretty cons- comprehensive trip notes that they get which goes into everything you've probably seen these notes they go into everything not only about the fishing but what to expect with other things but primarily the fishing and and you know i mean everything that they need to know to get themselves prepped up is in those trip notes and okay. look, 90 Five percent of the guys who um, come in have read their notes and do what I suggest they do. Um, I just want these boys to hit the ground running and not mm. have any glitches. But every now and then, you know, someone rocks up, and you know, I've got a mate who knows a friend whose cousin has been there back in 1985, and this is the go, and this is the stuff. And you know, there's a few occasions there where some guys will come up to me. This is this season. And say, oh, Andy, I'll show you my fly box. What do you think? And I'd be looking at their fly box. I'm thinking, like, holy shit, how am I going to let this do down gently? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and rather than say, mate, your flies are shit, um, I would go back to them and say, look, they're nice flies, but unfortunately, we don't have any bass on Christmas Island. <laughs> 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 but, you know, that's all good, mate, because I'm always prepared for that situation. And I think most seasons, but this season alone, I think I took about 400 flies with me. Yeah. Um, I had my own supply for myself, um, but I always have um, supply for that particular case. You know, don't worry about it, mate. Here's a dozen flies. Go fishing. Let me know how you go sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, that sort of works out eventually sort of stuff. Yeah, I'd have to say most guys were pretty well prepped. Keep, keeping in mind, of course, a lot of the guys I had in – this year, at least 50% of them were guys who were lined up in 2020, 2021, 2022, and they just didn't happen because of cancellations and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So they had plenty of time to prep. Um, leading into the season that I've just done, lots of communication, lots of emails, lots of phone calls sort of stuff. But that's fine. I love doing that stuff. I just want people to get there ready to roll and um, off they go sort of stuff. And that generally happens most of the time. It's it's pretty basic, really, when you when you boil it down to right. There's there's well and truly proven flies, well and truly proven oh, yeah. techniques. There's there's proven gear to wear, shoes, shirts, yeah, yeah. you know, all that sort yep. of stuff. Rods to have, you know, leaders, leader construction, all that sort of stuff. Yep. It's it, I guess it's the same old adage, like you know, like I mean, essentially you you are acting as a guide. I mean, I know you're not a guide, but I mean, as a as the agent and prepping them up for what they're saying. It's no different to calling the captain of the boat you're going to come on for a, a, a permit trip and say, what flies should I bring? What lines? Oh, look, why exactly would, right. Exactly why would right. you pay that money to go fish with someone and not fucking listen to them? You know, like oh, it's just, look, you know, it, 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 I mean, as I say, 99% of the, the guys have got it under control, but they always confirm or, or bounce it off me and I'll say, yep, that's the go or not. This is what you should do or whatever. Um, you know, but as I say, you're always going to get a few guys just rocking there. You know, and uh, haven't read their trip notes, or you know, uh, what for whatever reason. And um, look, my I, I'm happy 
to be the um, sounding board for all of the guys I get in there. Um, um, and as I say, I just want them to get in there and hit the ground running sort of stuff. I mean, in the past, we've always recommended 12-pound tippet, um, mm. even down to 10. Well, that just wasn't happening this year. Um, I very quickly realised or recognised that um, 10 and 12 pounds is just not going to cut it. Um, I mean, some of those bigger fish were just pigging you on the eat on 12 pound. Mm. So people arrived and one of the first things I said to them, I said, look, you know, I, I know I mentioned 12 pound tip, but it's probably the recommendation I'm suggesting to you now that you go 14, 16, um, and they did. Some of them didn't. Some of them got pinged by some pretty hefty fish, but um, yeah, the, you've always got to adapt to the to the scenario. And there was a bit of adaptation needing to be done this season on those sort of things. Um, uh, the flies, oh, well, you know, pretty much the old standards, as you know. Um, were. The Don's box, the Don's box, yeah, they the Don's went choice. Really well, mate. They went, went great. I took a batch of those over. The whole my beers were great. Yep. Um, especially on those dark motley bottoms, they were fantastic. Awesome. Um, Borg's boners, well, they just smash out of the park anywhere. Sort what, of stuff. What and, a uh, what a what a sleeper of a fly that one. The people who I'm mm. sure the people who paid attention to that one and, and fished that probably saw why. Oh yeah, it is yeah. included in there. Yeah, yeah, it well, really yeah, it did went really well. I mean, Jason Borg, um, good mate of mine, he came in for two weeks, and the first thing I said, show me your fly box, and as per usual, open up his fly box, and 90% Borg's boners. Borg's and boners, and he just travels. The world when he fly fishes that's what he takes it's got a rigid fly box right there right yeah yeah so um so yeah we fished them and but look you know the good old normal standards um worked as well um not everything worked but yeah just back to your basic you know ci specials or your gotchas or variants of that sort mm. of thing um worked well anything that had a bit of orange in it i'm not talking like orange wing orange body orange everything i'm just sort of talking maybe about a bit of an orange thread with a pearl crystal flash body over the top just so that orange glow comes through the body with just a tan wing they worked really well mm. um yeah no it was it was um, pretty well back to basics as far as the flies and that concerned that's for sure yeah cool man oh that's yeah. um that's really good mate it's uh it's good that people are paying it like uh you know getting the most out of the trip by listening to yeah, well, essentially yeah. following the beef really like you, you know you, in that circumstance yeah, that's you are you are the butcher you know like <laughs> yeah you know, there's not too many people who've been to christmas island as, as much as as you have andy plus Probably you know not. like you want to see people get the most value from their trip you know yeah, so I do, mate. I do. why um, why wouldn't they i mean i'm sure there'd be no no i mean the stick the secrets would be in the fact that you're only going to tell your clients for the villagers your information, yep. and and you know it's be it'd be unfair to ask you for information if you weren't one of your clients there, and I guess that would be the secret there, I suppose, in that respect. Like uh, you get, there's no reason to hold anything back from your customers, your clients, from having the best experience they could based on your experience right there, right? Yeah, look, hundred percent. I mean, I have had other guys from Australia who are going to other lodges for whatever reason um sort of reach out and ask me for a bit of advice and you know look some of them some of them i do give advice i mean i'm happy to spread the love sort of stuff um not all of them um sometimes i just revert back and said best to talk to your outfitter or whoever the case may be sort of stuff so i'm not trying to be um uh exclusive of those sort of guys because once again the big picture is the more of a guys come into the island no matter where they stay the better it is for the entire island but um yeah I, at the same I, time it it's it it would look 
it happens in all industries, I'm sure, but competing against guys that um that flout themselves to have the same experience, you know, like you you make it makes you wonder like why are you not asking that dude? You know, well, look, it's exactly right. You know, you know like goes from my head sort of like, thing. You know, like get back to the dude that you're going organise a trip for you. You know, hey yeah. Andy, what's the best tides? Whatever. Well, that's such a intricate question, and um, it depends what you want to do on what tide sort of stuff. So, you know, well, there's information let's... there that I guess I sort of keep only for my guys at the villages. But that's information and knowledge that I guess I've managed to glean over the time that I've been going there. And it's just, and I'm, look, you know, our, our guides are all over it. There's no doubt about it. They know exactly where, when, and why to be there. But um, someone like myself, you start to get a bit of a feeling as to how the lagoon does work on different tides and you do know what flats are best on a run-in. You do know what flats are best on a run-out. You do know where there's going to be more fish on any particular tide. For example, there was plenty of times there where you'd be on a flat. They'd be just loaded with bones, bones everywhere, yet there'd be one of, one of another fisherman from our lodge or whatever on a flat 100 metres away. And um, very few fish. So um, you sort of start to, I guess a pattern starts to emerge. And, look, you know, I'm always asking our guides as to, hey, mate, I had an epic session on Orbis Flat today. It was a run-out tide. We're looking at the moon phases and stuff. Why is that? And they'll tell you. They'll mm. tell you why. Um, but I don't share that information with anyone other than my clients. Um, I don't feel... The need to. Um, I don't know whether that's been looked upon as I'm selfish or not. No, I don't know. Maybe it mm. is, but don't care, to be honest with you. Um, as I said from the get-go, my focus is the villagers. My focus is, is the community, our guides, my clients, um, and that's where it stops sort of thing to, to I, a degree. I can remember... <clears throat> I'll mention the, the dude's name if you want, but um, but you know, I don't have to either. Um, um, it might have been. I'm pretty sure at at, at the mini. Uh, obviously, I was on a different trip to you there. Um, but there was a um, a dude who ended up being one of the the. It, I'm sure he was a guide at the time, but he had a job with that um, that lodge as a boat driver. Yeah, and, and Tanaki. Yeah, it was Tanaki. Yeah, but I didn't. Know, I wasn't sure if we wanted to mention, but yeah, Tanaki nah, was cool. a boat driver then. Yep. And and the guides that were working out of that that place were were probably cheaper to the good guy operated the hotel there, and. Um, and you'd rock, and he'd rock up, and and be like, we come back to the boat. Be like, oh, there's no bones here. He put his hand in the water. I go, no, yep. no, yep. not here. No, we yep. we go go over there. Put his hand in the water. Yeah, there'll be bones here. Yeah, yeah. and look, Tanaki and then, was just at that particular week um, was just filling in time, and yeah. the mini, and he didn't, uh, he wasn't guiding at, on that particular week, so he was driving the boat. Just and, employed oh, as a boat driver. And interesting you say that. Like our, we've got our boat drivers. We've got several boat drivers. Um, as you know, we've got five boats, so we've got five boat drivers. And, you know, um, I wasn't aware at the time, but, like, this time around, and as you know, I, I fish over there without a guide, um, mm. have done for a long time, and there's two reasons for that. A, I'm pretty decent at spotting fish for myself in certain conditions, but B, I'm not taking a guide out of the roster that a client could be using sort of thing. So I'd sort of jump off on a flat with someone in his guide, and then I'd just split and go 100 metres away and do my own thing, they might get picked up off the flat to go elsewhere and I'd just sort of hang there on my own and then all of a sudden I'd get on the radio and call the boat over and say, um, yeah, it's all finished here, let's go. 
and they'd come and pick me up. And there's this one particular occasion where Charlie, one of our boatmen, a lovely bloke, um, he picked me up and he says, where do you want to go? And I said, you tell me. I'm easy. And we'd go past, we'd go, oh, hang on a sec, Charlie, that flat looks good. What do you reckon? He goes, no, no bonefish there. I'm going, oh, really? And he'd keep on cruising along and say, what about this little pancake here? He goes, no, no, no bonefish there either. Okay, sweet. And then he'd pull up on the flat and he goes, here, lots of bones. I kept, righto, okay, and off I'd get. And he was right. Mm. And I thought, look, how the hell do these guys know that? A, I sort of thought, well, I mean, they've been driving boats in the lagoon and working with guides for so many years. They get to know. I found out that he's a retired guide. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so most of our boatmen, we've got a couple of young guys, but most of our senior boatmen are retired guides. So their mm. knowledge of the lagoon is pretty intimate and pretty pretty switched on. But you're right. I do remember Tanaki sitting there and putting his finger in the water going, no. You know, off we go to another flat sort of stuff. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, legend of a man, absolute legend of a man. Yeah, I lost that um, recording. I did, I did an interview with him, remember? On I video? remember. Yeah, you know, I remember I, that. I did a, it's like a it's like a 20-minute interview with Tanaki. Yeah, and yeah I remember that. I remember that. Jeez, yeah. mate, if you could dig that up, that'd be great. You know, I got off the plane um, when I arrived, got through customs, got my certificate for the, the license and stuff, and walked outside, and there was a massive big billboard Right outside, welcome to Christmas Island, bone fishing. And there's a picture of Nimaya. Mm. You may remember Nimaya. I remember Nimaya, yep. He, he's no longer with us either, yeah, holding a bonefish. And I looked at that photo and I said, I think I know that photo. As it turns out, that particular day we were fishing on Worm Flat. There was myself, Nimaya, Voltsy, and I think John O'Shales sort of stuff. And, uh, and so there you go. As you walk into Christmas Island, there's this big picture of Nimaya. Um, uh, holding a bonefish sort of stuff. So he was another legend guide as well. And yeah. um, Shimano, as you know, probably fish with Shimano. He's no longer with us. Shimano and, was uh, um, just starting when uh, when I was there last. Uh, no, Shimano had been doing it for a while. Um, he was a fairly – he was a 25-year-old, 25-year veteran. Or he could have been, if whatever. Um, but once again, one of those guides, very humble sort of guy. He flew a bit under the radar, Shimano, as far as – you know, his reputation, but everyone who fished with him had a huge respect for him and everyone knew that this guy is one of the best. There's no doubt mm. about it, you know. Uh, yeah, so oh, unfortunately, no he's, he's no longer with us. And yeah. uh, there was a young guy um, who was um, I first met at the mini hotel, uh, Kuritaro. And yeah. uh, Kuritaro at the time was about 18 when I first met yeah, him. Yeah, he was, he was just the dude I was with. I caught my first bonefish with Kuritaro. Yeah, gr yeah, really nice guy. Yeah. And anyway, he progressed on and on. He eventually um, became head guide at Ikari. Oh, no um, way. Yeah. And um, every time I'd come to the island, he knew I was on the island, so he'd come down to the villages to say hi and stuff. Just a lovely guy. Anyway, he passed away as well. Oh, no uh, way. Quite tragic. I didn't know that. Yeah, look, during that sort of COVID period and um, when they were – he was picking coconuts – um, trying to get some money together for to feed his family, and uh, he was uh, he had a long metal pole with a saw on the end of it that he was picking the coconuts with. Anyway, he walked across the road and uh, hit the power wire. Hit the power. Oh. Hit the power and bang, done. So that was extremely, extremely tragic. Oh, that's so, so sad. Yeah, yeah, it is sad. But um, I'm but, I'm certain that, that that time I fished with him, like it was, he, he might have been there the week with you guys, but that was it was close to his first time ever. Like, it was, uh, mate. He was that was his first uh, first gig as a guide. 
sort yeah. of stuff. Um, but he you had might no remember some of those. With him. Yeah, that's him. That's him. Yeah. He was um, still seeing fish though, really yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, they can all see fish, mate. It still blows me away. You'd be standing there and it's, you know, waist deep water. It's overcast. It's glary. You know, you cannot see it well. You just can't see anything, and the guides are still saying, you know, bonefish 30 feet, 1 o'clock, and you're going serious. And, um, and there is. And I, 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 I just, I mean, I'd love to be able to learn how to do that. Um, and I'd be always picking their brains saying, what did you see? How did you see that? Whatever. And they'd sort of try to describe it to you, but it, they just couldn't seem to put it into words. And you know what? Um, I eventually came to the conclusion that, you know, there's a lot of skill involved in doing that but i also think from their perspective there's a lot of instinct there as well um but it's the, just the an instinctive are, thing mate it's just so instinctive i really think it is the gilbertees are, are known like amongst other pacific islanders like the gilbertees are like the the, the head watermen you know if you know what i mean oh, like, they are like, mate. like they uh are. i had a i had a friend of mine a fijian friend of mine and he was talking about like and um Actually, he used to work for me and I had another dude who was a Samoan working for me as well. And they're talking about the Gilbertese. Yep. They're just saying that, like, how, like, like if they're ever lost, like, they're the ones that are lost at sea for days and they're, um, and they're, they survive. Like, they're they the do. ones that swim between, like, will swim between islands and stuff and just make it, you know? And it's just, oh, they do. I mean, legendary amongst unusual, the other Pacific it's not, Islands. It's not unusual you know? to see in the news, um, at some stage, like, you know, seven Kiribati men found floating after three weeks at sea, you know. Um, that <laughs> Spirits thousand, high. Uh, yeah, a thousand kilometres, you know, away from anywhere. They've yeah. just been adrift. They've survived. Um, they are extremely um, talented and adaptable people when it comes to the, the fishing. And, I mean, at the end of the day, their life is centred around the lagoon from the time they can walk. But, yeah, I, 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 I certainly recognise this time around that um, just observing them going about their business and whatever, just, that it is so instinctive for them. you got to wonder, eh, if, if their eyes have adapted to the glare of the water, you know? Oh, like I think they have, mate. You know, yeah. I really do think they have. And whether that's a, it's a, um, uh, like a, a, a generational thing or a, what do they call it, an evolution type of thing maybe, I don't know. I mean, that's it's probably not, but I am 100% convinced that, you know, there is a lot of skill there's a lot of practice. Um, there's a lot, a lot of many, many days on the water to get them to that level. But yeah. I'm 100% convinced that there's a certain percentage of it is, is instinctive. I mean, for example, Eckes. You know Eckes, mm -hmm. um, right? I was having a chat with him, um, and he's been guiding for 23, 24 years. And some of the clients who fish with Eckes would always say, can't believe how that guy moves through the water. It's almost, you just don't know he's moving you know, through the water. It's almost seamless through the water when he's walking or wading and stuff like that. Um, so I'm having a chat with Eckes and about anything and everything. And I said to him, I said, hey, how many years have you been here now, Eckes? And he goes, I've been going for 24 years, Andy. So I sat back and I said, well, how many days each year do you think that you maybe have guided? And we worked it out. So we averaged it out about 200 years, 200, sorry, 200 days each year on average, that he'd been guiding multiplied out by 24 years. You know what it came into? 65,000 hours. Wow. <laughs> Fishing on the lagoon. Now, I sort of said to myself, well, mate, if you weren't good by that amount of time, there's something wrong sort of stuff, <laughs> you know. And that's the same with some of our younger guides. Like, you know, uh, some of our guides that back in 2019 may have only been 12 or 18 months experience sort of stuff or even prior to that. Um, even some of our younger guides who might have only been fishing 
as a guide for two years, uh, some the first thing I guess that people think is, oh, maybe he's not that experienced. But once again, you work it out, 200 days a year on the lagoon times three years, that's a lot of hours on the lagoon. Um, yeah. You know, and every year I go back there, well, prior to, prior, well, when I got went back there this time, but prior to that, um, it always amazed me how some of these younger guys who, last time I was there, might have only been 12 months experience, are now into their second year and just the advance in their capabilities and whatever is, is very, very noticeable sort of thing, very noticeable. Do you think it frustrates the guides sometimes when they might hear, and this is a fictitious character, uh, Barry from Brisbane, um, yeah. yeah, might come up and go, no, no, I disagree with what he says, you know, um, knowing full well the hours they're put on there, you know, and, and they're so free with their advice. Do you know what I mean? Do you think it, do you think it frustrates them or, or do you think it's just like no, whatever? No, look, I think they're, they're the sort of people that um, they'll do anything. Well, they will do anything it takes to make sure that the fisherman is catered for. Um, I don't think there's any egos amongst them sort of thing. I don't think that is part of their culture. Um, they are extremely um, uh, happy to assist okay. So I don't mean it like an ego. I mean like that. what you just said there, like we want to help you. Like yes. why, why won't you let me help you, you know? Oh, uh, look, yeah, look, they just keep on, they, whatever they, they, they might be thinking about that, I'm not too sure, but they will just never let that, um, distract them or divert them from the job that they have at hand. Like I make a point of going up to every guide that we have at the end of every week, when especially when the changeover um, comes in and the new guys come in and the night before, we generally have a guides meeting um, every Tuesday night. And I make a point of just saying to every one of them individually, what a great job they do. I'm so happy. Thank you so much for looking after my fishermen. You do great work. Blah blah blah, and um, every one of them just say thank you, Andy. It is our job. That's the, that's what they do, and they they don't take their position lightly. Um, you know, um, they recognise the fact that um, they're very privileged. I guess if that's the right word, to be in a position where they are working as a fishing guide over there, um, and um, they just want to get better at it, and they just want to they just they just want to please, mate. They just want to make everyone happy and that's just mm. not the guides that's just the that's the culture people. that's the culture um yeah. the overriding vibe that that you get um over there is they just want to make everyone comfortable happy and they will do whatever it takes within the resources that they have to make that happen and um, you can't ask for anything more you really can't um yeah. there is no point in going around from my perspective um telling them what to do or how to do things. Never do that. I never have. I never will. Um, you know, they go about their business as they go about their business, but they do thrive on recognition and congratu congratulations and stuff like that. Um, so they're just a great bunch of people, mate, really a great bunch of people. I'm super proud of our, of our guiding roster. I am pretty happy to say that I think that we have some of the best guides on the island. Um, there are some very good guides in, in other lodges, um, but we have, I think, the best crop of guides um, that, are, that are on the island, and um, that's just me. That might be sounding to you or to those listening like, yeah, of course, Andy's going to say that. 
um, but that's not the case. Proof um, of the pudding, mate. It's you know, happy customers, good fishing. Yeah, great, 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 uh, and and numbers too. You know, like yeah, um, exactly. I'm not, not going to exactly. ask you to, to like you know compare numbers to other villages on the on the island. I'm not, you know, that'd be a bit crass on the show, but. Um, I think I think if people were to do their own research, they would see which one is the most popular, and there's a very good reason for that. Well, look, I think so, mate. Um, I mean, the one guide per fisherman is a is a is a is a deal breaker. That's a great thing. Um, and as you know, and a lot of people know, we are the only lodge on the island that, that offer that for the cost of the package. Other other lodges do offer that, but it's an extra payment, or don't know how much more you got to pay. Mm. But what enabled us to do that was. Um, and I don't know if I've explained this to you at all before, but what it enabled us to do that was <clears throat> we recognised, oh, got to be eight, nine years ago, maybe eight years ago, that um, you know, some of these guides might work one day, two days straight and get paid for their whatever their day rate is. And then they may not get another day's work for another three days or four days sort of stuff. Mm. So uh, the word budgeting money just doesn't come into their vocabulary at all. So sometimes they'd have to hang out to get another day's work to be able to go and buy a bag of rice or whatever, some fish to feed the family sort of stuff. So um, I approached the, the chairman of the board and the directors uh, on this particular occasion and just sort of said, look, you know, just curious as to know what's the average earn that your guides are on. And they've got all the records, so they gave me the figure. These are when they were just getting paid for the days they work. <clears throat> and... Um, and whatever that figure was, and I said to them, I said, well, I'm proposing that let's chuck 10% for each guide on top of that, divide it by 52, and pay them a weekly wage of X amount of dollars. And they said, that's a great idea. We're on board with it, providing the guides are on board with it. So, okay, we'll leave that to me. So I went and had a meeting with the guides and floated that idea and explained it to them. And I said, let me know, hand, show of hands, and every one of them, put their hand up. So bang, all of a sudden, these guys full -time are employment. full-time employment, yeah. security. Um, they know they're getting an income every week, whether they work or not, um, plus their tips on top. Um, and away we went. That was a great thing. But secondary to that, that then allowed us to say, righto, we can now afford to have one guide per angler. And um, so that's how that all began. And mm. um, that was a definite game changer for the villagers. Um, there's no doubt about that. So, uh, as I say, these guides now have security. Um, and we have a lot of guides from other lodges that would dearly love to come and work with us. Um, but unfortunately, unless they live in the, the village of Tabakea, the local community, um, they, they can't. They just, the management, and that's not my decision. That's 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 the management decision on who works and who doesn't work there sort of stuff. Yeah. But one of, the, one of the first things they have to be is if they've got to live in the village of Tabakea to even have a, a look in to get a job at the villages sort of stuff. Um, yeah. So I guess in a way, um, I guess we are a bit of a, a different way we do things um and quite honestly i think we're sort of in a way the envy of some of the lodges over there um some of the other guides over there um that's a good thing that's a good mm. thing it keeps us on our toes and keeps us wanting to keep improving things and so forth um which which we do i mean i've just had uh, seven young 
men from the community line up as potential guides. So I spent the last probably nine weeks progressively, a couple of days a week, just working with them and sorting them out. And look, my input into them becoming guides is minimal, really. Um, I'm basically just showing them a few basic knots, a little bit of casting, <clears throat> but getting them out in the lagoon on a one-on-one, -on -one, some of them fishing with me, some of them just observing, and I'm basically just observing what their attitude is and if they can see fish, that sort of stuff. And then I just narrow that down and I say to the head guide and the chairman, I said, look, out of these seven guys, I recommend these two, and I leave it at that. And then it's up to the management to decide whether they get a job at the villages and if they do then they just embark on a traineeship where they just spend a year or 18 months on the shoulder of a more experienced guide just observing listening taking in information before they actually get a a wage or mm -hmm. anything like that um it may sound a bit harsh but it seems to work and once again this is just the way they do things over there so we sort of figure if some of these young guys are still hanging around and are keen after 12 or 18 months of not even getting an income from what they're doing and it's still they're ready to rock and roll. Well, you know, they're well, pretty committed. They're pretty it, it, On a face value, it, it does sound like what, you know, particularly in Australian culture, like that yeah. seems like, you know, like having to go. But let me direct people back to the beginning of the show where we talked about it being a um, uh, a, a church-run place or non-profit and putting people back in the community. And like you said there, you've watched people support not only their family, but their brother's family as well. Like the money yeah. that's getting made from... From that, no one's going hungry or no one's starving or having to sleep on the floor. It's just no, they're not. They're not. They're just not making their own money yet. You know. No, it's, no, exactly right. And you know, as I say, it's a, it's a, one of those setups there that, um, yeah, they just look after each other. You know, yeah. Our, gu our, gu our guides are extremely tight team, and you know, I don't speak much Gilbertese. Um, I speak a little bit. How, how's it going with that? Can you could you say stuff now? Oh, for sure. Yeah, Maori Kawara. Um, Karapa i Meruru, um, which is basically... How dare you say that to me? I have to, <laughs> to edit that out. Oh, my God. Which is basically saying, Mary, hello, Karapa, uh, Kawara is how are you? And then mm. the response is, Karapa, thank you, i Meruru, I'm feeling fine, sort of. Mm. So I'll cool. forget all of that stuff, you know, by not using it. So I've got a few phrases that I know of and that, but once... You hear the guides talking to each other on the radios while you're on the flats. They're having a good old time. They're laughing. They're cacking themselves. I'd, <laughs> love, to, I'd love to know what they're talking about sort of stuff. <laughs> but I know, I know. And this, just to give you a classic example, we were fishing one day, um, myself and a couple of guys, and we were somewhere um, in the lagoon, and Menti, one of our um, long-term guides, he was fishing with um, – a uh, guy by the name of David uh, Wait. David's a friend of Chris Beach's. And uh, Beachy and Dave were in there on this particular week. Anyway, we're just cruising. It was coming towards the end of the day, and um, we were just about to wind up and start looking for having a beer. And we're sort of heading back down towards the villages. And anyway, all of a sudden, Menti gets on the radio on the two-way and says something in Gilbertese, which I didn't take too much notice. Next thing you know, the boat's doing a 180-degree turn and we're heading back. I'm thinking, where are we going? Anyway, we end back up there towards uh, the back of Orvis Flat, which is, on one particular side, is a pretty well-known hotspot for GTs on a, the right tide. And what was happening, there was a school of, I don't know, 20 to 45, 50-pound jeets up on the flats, pounding the crap out of mullet and milkfish. So Menti had David with him God, could you imagine being in that? Oh, that that's something I've never seen. Like that's it was crazy. That's just a god gift, right it there. It was crazy. Look, I've seen that 
on that particular flat in that particular location maybe half a dozen times yeah. um, over the years, but it's not something that you could set your clock by. So anyway, so never we've, been easy we've, for me. We've gonna, I want to talk about GTs after this. Yeah, actually. yeah. So we've we've lobbed up there, and David um, uh, Beachy's mate was hooked into his second fish. Um, so there was myself. God, kissed uh, on the dick or what? <laughs> <laughs> right spot at the right time. Yeah. But the guide knew when to be there. Mm. Basically, it meant he knew exactly when to be there. So we pulled up, and there was myself, uh, Jason, my friend, and Nigel a guy who um, came in from the UK for two weeks, lovely bloke. Um, we give him a bit of stick about the ashes, you know. Every time Nigel would do something, we'd just say, stay in your crease, Nigel, stay in your crease. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, he, he was um, having a great time, but he hadn't ticked off a GT. So, right, out you go. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. I said, Nigel, get out of the boat, get out there and get amongst it. There's fish everywhere, which he did, and he hooked up got himself a lovely GT. I stayed out of the scene. You know, I didn't want to go in there and catch GTs and take that opportunity away from the from the clients. Not what I do. That's like a guide just picking up a rod without being invited, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and Jason entered the fray, but by that time it was all done. But I guess this particular gentleman, Nigel, um, for him it was a fish of a lifetime. Now, that wouldn't have happened unless Menti, our guide, who was fishing with another crew on another boat, had called our boat and called us over. We would just would have kept on going. So I guess that's, to me, is an example, a classic example of how sharing our guides are with information amongst each other, where to be, come over here, the fish are happening here. So I know for a fact when I hear the chatter happening on the two-way radios while I'm fishing a flat, they're talking to each other, asking, what's it like over your way? Yeah, it's a bit quiet. Okay, come over my way all working together as a team sort of stuff. So uh, yep. that was a great moment. But this guy, Nigel, just I'll just give you a little bit of a story about this. He had never fished for anything other than carp, roach, tench, and possibly some grayling or something in fresh water. So he was completely... So he's backing for the first time. Com yeah, pretty much. So he was completely novice, um, hit, the, hit the Christmas Island. He was so pumped about this trip. Trip of a lifetime, he always kept on saying to me in our communications and stuff like that. So he's turned up, and he just turned up there with no expectations, nothing other than the fact that I'm going fishing. I really don't have much of an idea what I'm doing, but I've got confidence in my guides. I've got confidence in Andy's advice. I've got confidence in the whole system. And off he went with a completely clear, uncluttered mind about anything. He killed it. He absolutely smacked it. He got big bones. He got triggers. He got jeets. He went out blue water one day. Admittedly, he was trolling a lure. He got sailfish. He got wahoo. He got yellowfin tuna. And to me, it was just so good to see. For him, that's the classic example of if you've never been to Christmas Island, put all the, your preconceptions behind you, hit the place with an open mind, relax, enjoy the people, enjoy the company of your guides, and it'll happen. It'll certainly happen. But if you go over there with all these preconceived ideas and you're getting angry and you're getting grumpy because for whatever reason and you start blaming everyone else for your inabilities, you're going to have a crap time. So to me, that was just – I said to him, I said, Nigel, you played after his two weeks. I mean, the guy was almost in tears when he was leaving. And I said to him, I said – I just said to him, I said, mate, I've got to say to you, you played the game so well. Um, you've done so well. Um You've fished so well, and he did, and yeah, it's just you know 
So it doesn't matter where you go, but particularly Christmas Island, just turn up there, keep your mind clear, your mind free, listen to what people say. It doesn't matter what experience level you're at, from a humble beginner of salt water through to, you know, someone who, who is a very experienced fly fisherman, you'll never, ever stop to learn um, oh, about absolutely. how things work over there. Yeah. And, you know, I did Anywhere, see, really. and I did notice over the period of a season that those guys who turned up, and there wasn't many, but there was the odd guy who turned up who, you know, don't worry, Andy, I've been here seven times, I know what I'm doing. Um, no, I don't want to fish that particular flat because I don't think that flat's going to be any good. I want to go there. Oh, um, and I would say to these people, I said, so you're prepared to second guess our head guide who's been here for 32 years, knows the lagoon backwards and has put you on that particular location first thing in the morning because of his knowledge. You're prepared to second guess that. Um, I suggest if you do so, you do so at your own peril. Some of them said, yeah, you're right. What am I thinking? Some of them, one or two guys go, yeah, I don't care. I know what I'm doing. I've been here before. Off you go. Um, they do so at, at their own peril and they suffer because of it. As simple yeah. as that. You know? That's so I guess the, I guess Yeah, it is a shame. But I guess the lesson there is um, just listen to what the guides are saying. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Listen to what um, is happening, what other guys are experiencing, and just um, go with the flow. And um, if you do that, then you're going to have a wonderful experience at Christmas Island, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's talk GTs now, Andy. GTs. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, man, it's a um, wonderful place for GTs. I heard something when uh, when it opened back up, when when one of the American groups was in there, in the, I think it was in the first week I heard. Yep. Uh, it I think it might have been a podcast, actually. It was, um, I think Yellow Dog might have done it, and they, were, yep. had, they interviewed someone in the first week. Mm-hmm. And the the, the over, overwhelming um, standout to that person was how aggressive the GTs were when, when sure. they came back. Yeah, so is absolutely. That, is, that, is that the case that you're finding as well? Yeah, yeah. Look, you know, there was, um, you know, Pre twenty nineteen, it um, it was pretty well known that um, the GTs in the lagoon had succumbed to some fairly vigorous acts of chumming, burling in the lagoon by certain operators, a certain lodge on the island. I won't name any names. Certain operators, a certain operator from back here in Australia. I won't name any names. Um, but they, it was a combined uh, effort. Hang on, oh, are you, a, a you're telling me that like there's a a um, sorry, Andy, I don't mean to cut you off. I'm just, I just want to get that straight. That sounds pretty blows me away. I mean, don't know, don't know, names. Don't, don't no, not no. what the podcast's about. No, just the idea that um that that someone from another country comes in and changes the behavior through chumming. Why? Well, Why would well, they do that? I mean, what's stuff in their shoes? Why would they be doing it? Do you think? Well, once again, um, there's no scientific data to call upon, but those who know the island um, intimately or as best as they can, uh, myself, a lot of other people involved, um, I've got a couple of clients who come there specifically to fish GTs. Um, Why people chum them up? Well, you've got to ask yourself the question. Well, um, I mean, well, just, sorry, just just a we, we could we could answer that. I mean, like they're chumming up because they they don't want to hunt them. They just well, wanna, they yeah, want the photo basically. They, they just want to they want I a guess. fish that's so crazy mad eating whatever the fuck is in front of it. Yeah, that they don't want to put the skill in because the only reason could be because they're not eating the fish is for a photo, 
right? Well, yeah, and I also understand that there's packages to Christmas Island being sold by outfitters um, guaranteeing their clients that they'll get them a you know, big GT Oh, so it's part of, of the guarantee. It's, it's yeah, in some instances it has been sort of thing. Um, why someone would do it, I don't know, just, just a bunch of lazy fucks who don't know what to do otherwise. Um, I don't blame the guides who are involved in it. I honestly don't. I mean, there's no moral argument from their point of view. Um, if someone's going to say, hey, mate, um, I want to get a big GT um, or I want my clients to get a big GT, we're prepared to tip you 100 bucks extra every day, of course they're going to comply, you know what I mean? I don't mm. blame – I blame the operators of those particular – those particular – well, one particular lodging in particular. And I blame the, the outfitters, if you want to call them that, um, who are putting the groups together for that behaviour. I do not take any blame or anything <clears> – <throat> put any blame on any of the guides at all. Um, cool. It's not – as I say, for them, there's no such thing as a moral argument when it comes to earning a bit of extra coin. That's just the way it is when you're yeah, in a third, third world country sort of stuff. So I think I just, it, has to, yeah. it has to fall upon the shoulders <clears throat> of the operators – um, about that, and I just sort of think, you know, man, really, I mean, you can go to, well, as you know, you can go to Christmas Island and do it the right way, and why, we've, we've, why proven, we've proven it time and time again, even this season, lots of big GTs caught just doing it the right way, or you can go and stand on the flat and feed pets and put a fly in there and get the hero shot, whack it up on Instagram, away you go sort of stuff, which is pretty piss poor. This is the thing, it, it, it travel like that huge distance. To a, to a place that's got plentiful fishing and can't you can be presented with the opportunity of that yep. that that single cruising fish on a flask that's not aware that you're there before yep. or not there for any other reason than it's on its own accord yep. and to present a fly in front of it like that's the reason we fly fish like why, well, look, why? look it is it is mate and look i mean just because there's a big gt up on the flats hunting doesn't mean it's a it's a dead set sitter of a, a shot oh hell no um, you'd super. be surprised how many of those big gt spook off the the, the side of a of a uh, you know uh, 150 mil bait fish pattern coming at them from the wrong direction. Yeah. You know. Um, you know. If, if it's not coming at them from where they expect it to come from, um, they're out of there most times. Mm. They're out of there most times. But if you play the game right and you do it and you're working with a group of guys or a group of guides that know where to go um, and are happy to do it that way, then which is basically how we do it, then that's that's so much more rewarding than standing on a flat in the middle of the goon and it's a little pancake area which they mainly focus on um and chumming them up and you know some poor old dude who you know doesn't know how to get the job done or is too lazy or for whatever reason um um catching them that way it's yeah it's pretty piss weak actually i feel sorry for the clients really like if you've got an operator that's or that that's like no 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 like, let's not go out and hunt one Let's not go spend the time hunting. I could just get you one. I'll guarantee you'll get you one. Yeah. Like, to, like to some people, they're probably never going to go back, or they've probably saved so much money, like for for whatever their reason, the situation is, to get there and yeah. take it so to to have to be. Oh, and like, if you're going to possibly, I think the opposite. Actually, I think those guys who are doing it are happy to do it that way. Well, the, I mean, there's there's no doubt there's people like that, but there's no doubt in my mind as well. There's someone in that group who's come along because Barry from Brisbane's told them yeah. about it. You know, and they've gone, oh, this is what they did. Like, they come back, they tell you about their experience. They go, well, they didn't want to go hunt the flats. That's what they wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. You know, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, um, there's plenty of guys out there, I think, that, that are happy to do that. 
Um, but like you know, man, like you know, you imagine if you went up to say Harvey Bay, um, and you started burling the flats there for Goldies, you know, I mean, imagine if you went up to Hinchinbrook and started burling the flats there for 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 permit. Like I mean, if that happened up there, mate, you'd end up getting necked, and they'd find you in a crab pot halfway up. The <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? It's but just the fact not. That it's they it's not the cricket, fact, mate. That's nah, for sure. but the fact that they do it over there. It's sort of almost like it's out of sight, out of mind. And it is just so disrespectful to the fishery, so disrespectful to the fishery. But what they don't realise is these guys fly in and do their two-week stint. They put fuck all into the economy, basically. Um, and then they fly out. And they're conditioning these fish to not take a fly, um, which therefore cruels it for the other guys who want to come in and do it the right way. And if the guys who want to do it the right way come in and find that these fish are unresponsive because of the activity of burling or chumming them up, these guys aren't coming back to Christmas Island. And mm. um, because they go, no, the GT fishery is not what it used to be like, blah, blah, blah. They're being chummed um, the shit out of them. They're not taking flies. And that is what it was like getting that stage pre-2019. Um, let's move forward to today. And I got intel from the island that the first flight from a, that was in there on the second of May, there was guys burling, and the Fuck. first and the first group of guys, to my knowledge, from Australia that were in there, there was guys burling, and uh, that just thought, come on, man, these fish haven't been fished out for four fucking years, and you're feeding them. Oh, you know what? God. I tell you, like, it's not. I, I wanted to end this conversation with the chumming because it was getting pretty dark a while ago, but it does charge me up. But I, 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 I still. Maintain, don't name these people, please. And I'm sure you don't want to either. No, but I'm not going I to. tell you, part of me really wants to name and shame these people, you know, like for not so much because of what they've done. Like, I mean, that's their choice and stuff like that. It's to make help people make an informed decision yep. on where to go and spend their coin. But we won't take the take the, uh, take the the high ground there. And look, you just I would just recommend do your research, people, if you're going to spend your money, you know. Well, it's, look, um, at the end of the day, um, it's only one operation – on the island that participates in it. Um, none of the other lodges and their guides do. We certainly never have and never will. Um, in actual fact, if any of our guides are found doing it, it's instant dismissal straight away. But interestingly enough, though, it was pretty good timing, actually, because um, I was having a chat with some of the boys from the fishery, especially the guys who were down on the island at the airport that collected the $60 Australian for your fishing licence for the week and so forth. And I got to know those boys pretty well. And I said to them, I said, have you guys heard about this practice of burling or chumming? And they said, mm, no, we haven't. So they were completely unaware of it. And I explained to them in a way what my thoughts are. Next thing you know, they said, well, you need to talk with the boss, a guy by the name of Max, I think his name is. So I went down to the fisheries one day and spent a good uh, probably half a day with them and explaining to them what was happening and what my thoughts on it were, but also mentioned to them the fact that if this continues and the fish get reconditioned back to what they were potentially like in 2019 and before that, um, it's going to cost you guys, the island, um, money into the economy because there'll be a certain percentage of uh, guys who want to go there targeting GTs who just won't come back. So let's see if we can nip this in the bud now before it gets to that stage. Look, throughout the whole nine weeks, ten weeks of my season that I was there, there was plenty of Jeets around and plenty of GTs to be caught the good way. There's no doubt about that. So the effect of burling and chumming this time around hasn't really happened. And to be honest, I didn't see anyone 
doing it while I was there um, because I thought I think um, um, the operator and the operators that did partake in it knew that we were pretty much keeping a pretty close eye on it and I had called them out personally on a one-on-one basis that um, basically said if I see you guys doing anything like that I'm going to name and shame don't give a shit so but the fisheries were very interested in it I believe there is now a move underfoot and particularly now that they're in the middle of redrafting the protection of the fisheries in the lagoon that I'm fairly confident that there will be um, something happen with the uh, banning of that practice moving forward in the meantime they all have the names of the people who are involved as far as the lodge and some of the operators that are bringing people in there I've given them the heads up so they are now watching okay so whoever's out there listening who participates in this, sorry, guys, but the gig's almost done. And if you go there and think you'll get away with it, you are pretty much being watched and you will be recognised the minute you go through immigration at Christmas Island. Just well, leave you with that thought. <laughs> well, there you have it. The Baron of Nesk 43, the, the Baron of Blend 43 is, has spoken. Yeah, <laughs> hey, uh, just, mate, let's, anyway, let's see. Just, let's get back to the to the aggressive GTs and like uh, mm. and the difference between the GT fishing now and 2009. And let's not talk about the chumming. No, no, okay, no. But um, just uh, just on the aspect of, of of how much more prevalent they are, or how much yep. more accessible they are, or yep. or or in comparison, are they or or are they? Well, not? look, you know, they are. Um, the GT fishing there at the moment is is good, but yeah, it's like anything. Um, you will you you will generally see at least one or two GTs on the flats every day in the lagoon, um, regardless of the tide or regardless of which flat. But there's certainly an increase in their um, their numbers and their occurrence on certain areas of the lagoon as we get into those spring tides. So for the diehard GT fishermen, that's the time you focus on. And to get it done and to do it properly, um, you've just got to leave the bonefish rod on the boat. Um, you know, you can be wandering around with your guide, your guide's holding your GT rod, <clears throat> you've got the bonefish rod. To actually initiate that switch over when a GT comes into too long. sight, uh, mate, it's all pretty much done and dusted by the time you're ready to fire a but, shot off. So. Uh, the GT's got to be cutting laps to be, uh, yeah, to, to yeah. be staying in the position to... Or, yeah. or hitting those um, schools of bait, like you were saying before. But yeah, yeah. So the guys who are genuinely wanting, hey, Andy, we want to really focus on getting a, a decent GT this trip. What can you tell us? Right, I, I can tell you that it's a bit early in the tides to be doing that. But as when we get to, say, Friday or Saturday, I'm going to suggest you guys get up to XYZ type of area. And um, But one thing I'm going to tell you is to take, put your blinkers on, leave your bonefish rod, your trigger rod, whatever, in the boat and walk with your GT rod ready to go. Now, I'm not guaranteeing you're going to get a fish. You might walk the whole day and not get a shot. But if that shot does come into play, you've got so much more of a chance to get that trophy fish, if you want to call it. And you know what? All the guys went, yep, we're going to do that. They scored big time. 60 mm. pounders, 50 pounders, whatever. They scored big time. Those who sort of thought, yeah, if a GT comes into view, we'll do the switch up and have a crack, didn't do so well. So it's one of those fisheries where, yes, it's very doable. Um, Yep, you've got to be disciplined to do it, um, which means if you're only there for a week, you're taking a day, possibly two days out of your bone fishing to get a GT. But isn't that what it's all about anyway sort of thing? Yeah. Um, You know, if you want to really get something like that happening, you've just got to focus in on it and be prepared to sacrifice 
you know, catching bones for a day or two or whatever the case may be. And um, if you do it that way, which a lot of the guys who were very successful in their pursuit of GTs did, hey, they came away with the trophy, mate, for mm. sure. Mm. Mm. No, that's awesome, man. It's, uh, it's, it's funny you should mention that. I've got a... I, I got plenty of soft stories about GTs on Christmas Island. That, I mean, yeah. that's the, the reason I'm. That's, actually, I mean, I love the I actually thought about you one day while I was over there, man. Thanks, was, man. Was yeah, I was fishing with a guy, Sean. Um, Sean from Tassie. G'day, Sean. If you're listening, I'm sure you are, mate. Oh, Sleever. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and we were cruising uh, to somewhere, and just on the edge of this flat was two really nice GTs just hanging in there. Right on the edge of this flat, two sixty pounders, and rather than put the boat up on the flat and just potentially disturb those fish and um, not even get a shot of them, it was decided by the guides that let's just hang off the flat and cast to these GTs on the flat from the channel. Right, oh, let's do that. Sounds like a good plan. Sean, up you get. So Sean got up there, and yeah, look, he had some really good shots of them. Um, unfortunately, he didn't convert, <clears throat> and um, he sat back down. And I said to him, I said, "There's a lesson in that one, mate." He goes, "What's that?" And I said, "You know, GTs don't eat from their ass." Oh man, I, to- which bring, I told which you the story. I it was <laughs> nothing to do with the ass of that thing. If Snarky yeah, was. was still alive, he'd tell you too, mate. That's uh, mm. you just manifested that stupid fucking story. Nah. To- Suit nah. your own comedic advantage, you know. No, nah, I was there, mate. I saw you weren't there, time. mate. It was oh. me and Snarky by ourselves. <laughs> down half when did you become so sensitive? Oh my god, that because that that was that was. <laughs> I tell you, mate, I nearly cried from that one. Oh fucking hell! It was not fun. Uh, nah, anyway, not fun. Uh, but there was one day you and I, like we got we got dropped off just you and I after, and that was the back of the day before I lost two solid fish. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it's a classic fail I've got. It's not a big fish. It's probably. 30 pound or something like yeah, that. And, um, still a nice fish, mate, on the fly. Like uh, the, the funny thing about that video, that photo is I've got such a look of disappointment on my fucking face. Because well, the, the photo doesn't it, tell the, the, the two days earlier of um of oh. chronic disappointment. To, <laughs> well, was, you broke uh, a fl- I think from memory you broke a fly line. I broke, yeah, I snapped a fly line. And on that was one. before the GT specific fly lines ever existed, Leon. Yeah, like that was before a, your that was 70 a, or 80 pound calls. This is when you're fishing a 30 pound broken strain core fly line. 32, uh, 32, I think it was a, it was a, it was a um, 12 weight tarpon yeah. mastery taper. Yeah, one um, of those. Like scientific angle line. Yeah. Snapped. Yeah. Um, I think Eckes was the guide at the time, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. yeah. For that for that particular fish. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what happened with that one. Like, I, I wasn't going to talk about that one, but that's a classic. It's a tail <laughs> in this one as well, is, is don't yeah. get your camera ready too early. Because I, I had that one, I caught that on a 12-8 GLX, and yep. the thing was flat. I, I measured the drag on that galvan reel yeah, on the back yeah, on scales. Yeah. Was, I, I had eight kilos of drag on the thing. It was just showing zero respect for the drag, and it's oh, flat. Yeah. I said to Eckes, get the camera out of my bag. I wanted to show my friends like how flat this this rod is, you know, and um, he goes, are you sure? And I go, yep, sure. And he goes, okay, and he had it lined up. And he's like, you ready? I'm like, yep, and I'm doing like a hang loose sign or something like that as this yes. rod's just flat off my hip. Yeah. And then, boom, Bing. the rod just goes straight. Yeah. What Before he took the photo. <laughs> what a oh, what a horrible dick. feel. I still shudder at the feeling of that. Oh, it's disgusting. Oh, talk about photos, mate. Um, funny story. Um, not about GTs, but about triggers. Like, there was a lot of triggers this year, lots of triggers, but they weren't easy. Trouty's trophy. Oh, mate, they weren't easy, but they were, there was lots of them. And um, <clears throat> um, once again, Alfred Pua and Team Singapore belted it out of the ballpark. Nice. They were fishing flexos, yep. um, and the, the the fly had some orange in it, and 
anyone who was fishing a fly with some orange in it or a shrimp with some orange in it had a really good chance of getting one of these triggers throughout the course of the whole nine, ten weeks I was there. Plus, we were fishing 30-pound breaking strain to them. Um, you just have to lock these things up and stop them from getting back in their little hidey hole or something like that. That's so anyway, nice, yeah, yeah. So a lot of good triggers were, were caught, um, nice big fat triggers. Anyway, I'm walking along with Jason, Jason Borg, mate of mine, one morning. We're just cruising down. I think it might have been the back of office or somewhere. I can't remember. Just shooting the shit and catching bones and having a fat old time. And up in the distance, in the middle of this sandy flat, was this really nice trigger, just happily tailing away. And I said to Jason, I said, you need to, let's go and see if we can have that one. And I said, you get yourself ready. So he changed his fly, um, put on a shrimpy, whatever, and off we go. Made the shot, got the eat, happy days. He's fight missing. And I said, look, I'll tail it for you. So I grabbed the leader when it was done, grabbed it by the tail and just held it in the water. Um, I think we got the fly out of its gob or something like that. And I'm just holding in the water while he was just squaring his gear away and he's getting his camera ready to take a shot. So, um, which we did, and I'm just sort of still holding this thing in the water and I'm lifting it up, having a look at it, putting it back in the water. So I think this thing looked pretty chilled out. So Jason was ready. So I said to him, I said, what, you ready? He goes, yep, yep, no worries. I said, okay, well, you grab the fish, give me your camera and we'll shoot some happy snaps and away he goes. He goes, yep. So he grabbed the fish. And I've stepped back and I'm sort of dicking around with the camera. Next thing, he's yelling his fucking head off, screaming. Ah, screaming. And what's going on? I thought a shark come up and bit him on the leg or something like that. He's reeling in pain. He's freaking over on his back in the water. We're only fishing knee-deep water. And the next thing I looked down, and this trigger man had done a 180-degree turn while he had his um, hand on the tail. And it was almost like this thing did it with intent. In, in actual fact, we swear it did. Came straight at him and bit him on the inside of his leg and would not let go. Now you've seen how much <laughs> you've seen how much damage these triggers can do. You just don't get your fingers near them, sort mm. of stuff. So he's screaming. I'm thinking, oh my god. So he reacted pretty quickly and just sort of yanked this thing off and finally got it off his leg because it was increasing its bite pressure by the second, just increasing. Mm. He pulled this thing off his leg and he had this perfect round. Uh, uh, mark hickey. on his, yeah, like a big red hickey with all these black bruise marks, which were the perfect outline of the teeth and stuff like that. And anyway, we've got the photograph and let this thing go. And we just sit there, I'm going like, mate, I have never seen that ever before. And he goes, no, nah, neither have I. Hell. Anyway, we caught, I called up the boat. Of course, the first thing, it had broken the skin on his leg. And the sort of the first thing I thought is, okay, we'll need to get that out of the water. And I said, you got any stuff in your bag? And he says, yeah, I got some and disinfect an antiseptic type of whatever in the boat. And I said, well, let's call the boat up and get that sorted before we keep fishing. He goes, yep, good idea. So I got on the two-way on the radio and I called up the boat and I said, yeah, Jason's been bitten by a trigger. Um, can you come over and pick us up and we'll sort that out? Yeah, no worries, which is what we did. Well, every guide from the village who was tuned in on the radio started pissing himself laughing and everyone in Christmas Island, I think, knew within an hour that Jason Borg had been bitten on the leg by a trigger fish. <laughs> I'd never seen it before, but the reaction on his face, I thought, dead set, what's going on? Is, is Jason having a clutcher? Has he been bitten by something? What's going on? And, yeah, this little trigger, well, it wasn't a little trigger, but the, this trigger just took took revenge straight away and latched on. It was never seen that before. We pissed ourselves laughing, of course. But, uh, yeah, never seen that yeah. before. Sorry, mate, I got off the track of the GTs.
Let's talk GTs, Andy. We're, we don't. I, mean, I, I really can't keep you for much longer. We're we're we're, we're coming up to two hours, which is yeah, um, cool. Two hours. Yeah. Jesus, yeah. you can shit. You can talk. <laughs> I believe I. I think I've actually got the uh, word count here and the time. I've actually got thirty-seven seconds of words in. The whole oh, there time. you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho. What can I say? Anywho. It, like I don't know what. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's talk GT. So yeah, you ba- yep. we're basically got to the point where we're um. Talk about how aggressive they are, how much more prevalent yep. they are, and yeah, well, we kind of done it, I suppose. Anyway, right? I mean, just yeah, yeah. Look, when you say prevalent in that, there was plenty of them around. Um, there's no doubt about that. That's what prevalent means. Yep, there is, but they weren't on every flat. There was times where you'd see them, but you know, if you know where to go, there's about probably I'd say one, two, three, four or five specific locations, flats um, that 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 I think and the guides know of that I'm not going to say again, going to guarantee you, but you really have a red hot go at getting one. And, you know, and it's all about the timing. It's all about being there. It's all about being patient. It's all about being persistent. So if you do that, yeah, you're going to score some really nice GTs. So um, what you're saying is you're going to target GTs, target GTs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't think exactly of them as a right. as a byproduct. No, so. do not do not treat them as a bycatch. You know, do not sort of think, oh, I'll be wandering along with my bonefish rod, and if I see a GT, yeah, I'll just sort of switch up and catch that thing. No, it doesn't happen. It the, rare, the best rarely appro- happens. The best approach, if you want good bone fishing and potentially good GT fishing, would be two weeks, wouldn't it, to get that spring tide? Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. You need to be able to fish through that sort of two week lead up, sort of from the neeps leading up to the to the spring sort of stuff um and it doesn't matter whether it's full moon or new moon as long as you get those spring tides uh building up and building up and then um in a perfect world and it can line up <clears throat> is if you're doing a two-week trip there you save your gt hunt until the last couple of days of your trip when the tides have aligned and just say right i've just had 12 days i've caught a stack of bones triggers whatever now's the time to to tick that box and um and that's how it works pretty much mm. Pretty much. I mean, it's like the same. You want to go, like, okay, Chris, let's go permit fishing, man. Yep, okay, let's go to where we know there's going to be a stack of permit or at least get some opportunities of permit, okay? We're talking Hinchy. We might be talking uh, Mackay, Bowen area. Um, there's no secret out there about that fishery, so I don't think I'm letting any secrets out of the bag by mentioning that. Um, so you go up there and you hit the flats. You've got the right tides and you've got everything like that. And after about an hour or so, you haven't seen a fish. If I turned around you and said, hey, mate, let's just give the flick and go barra fishing, you're not going to do that, are you? You're not there to go barra fishing. You're there well, to go you, you would, fishing. You would put a, you would, well, the thing is you'd tie a crab on, you know? Yeah. So, so you know, so the same way with GTs, you'd put, you know, I, I think I think brush flies are, are retarded for um, GTs. Like, why would you have the extra weight? So I'd put a hollow fly on, personally. Yep. And, yep. Um, but, uh, you know, in that way, I wouldn't be able to catch bonefish. You know? Yeah, look, that's exactly right. And the same if you're on a permit flat and you've got a crab on, you're not going to, you know, you're going to have all sorts of shit, other shit swimming by you. Um, yeah. And you just got to remain that way. And um, and it's no different at Christmas Island if you uh, want to do it. And that was evident about this other friend of mine, uh, Mike. Mike is based in the US. Um, he's been coming down to Christmas Island for God knows how many times. Um, yeah, I think his first visit to Christmas Island was in the 90s, mm. sort of thing. So very experienced fisherman, fishes all over the place. And that's exactly what he does, mate. That's all he does. He wants to catch a GT. <laughs> don't even bother about the bones. Walks yeah. over them, you know. Kicks the trigger yeah. in the head to get out of the way. 
that day with Ekis that you're saying there. Like him, I had to, I had to say Ekis. Okay, man, because he was like, "There's another bonefish. There's another bonefish. Yeah. Do you want to cast that one? There's another bonefish. No, I don't want to. Don't that. No, no, I'm all good. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's um. Yeah, I, I get it. Like, what's well, any species? If you're targeting any species, and that's the thing with those GTs, they're a, they're a trophy fish. You know, they're yeah, yeah, they are. They are. And um, I mean, they well, they all are. But I mean, there's potential for you know a hundred pound a hundred pound GT on, on like a proper legit stalking it, not aware yep. you're there. Flats caught a yep. yep. hundred pound GT is not out of the realms of possibility. There, you know, no, but, not uh, at all. No, I'm not, not comparing it with other places like the Seychelles and that. Obviously, that's a probably a better proposition but it's going to cost you 10 times as but much to get there and different. do it it's, yeah, it's different. different yeah it's different and you know what talking with this guy mike who goes down to the seychelles twice a year and others that i've spoken to um as well about it there really is only one or two particular atolls in that entire seychelles system that is for gt fishing um so it's not like they're all over the place in the Seychelles. They are in some places, but if you want to seriously go GT fishing in the, in, in the Seychelles, my understanding is, and I could be wrong, but my understanding is that you go to, I couldn't tell you the names, it might be Astove, I'm not too sure. Cosmolito. Uh, Cosmolito. That's where you go for your Jeets. Farquhar. Um, Farquhar. Excuse me, don't swear to me. What? <laughs> How Farquhar in hell. Farquhar in hell, yeah, sort of thing. Um, but that, that's all good, you know. That's all fine. But you know, um, that's that's out of the reach of most people when it comes to the cost of getting to a place like that. You know, you're talking fourteen, fifteen, seventeen US thousand dollars to get there. You know, you put that crunch that through the the, the, the converter, and it's over twenty grand Australian to mm. go and do that sort of stuff for a week. Well, hell, you know. Um, there's four or five trips to Christmas Island and um, sort of thing. So, but, you know, there are people that, that, that go there, good on them, and they do very well, but there's also people that come to Christmas Island and, and stay with us at the villages that do pretty well on the there's GTs not, as well. There wouldn't be too many people at the villages, I mean, at Christmas Island, I should say, that rock up without a bonefish rod just for GTs, whereas no. in, in those areas like Cosmolito and Farquhar or, you know, whatever, yeah, exactly. Like that's yeah. you know that's what they're that's what they're um exactly. Yeah. So they're bringing their bone uh, um, a bonefish rod like most people bring a GT rod yeah. to Christmas Island. Yeah, hundred percent. So you know, like it's it's got to be it's, it's to me. I mean, I know I say this, and I know other people say this as well. But in all sincerity, like I would love to go back there and and catch bonefish for sure. You know, and yeah. um, and if I have to like you know potentially put one in front of a trigger well sure I'll, I'll i'll entertain that idea yeah but yeah the idea of going there just for gts is something i could easily commit to you know? well you could and in saying that that's probably how you do it but i will almost put the challenge out to you that um you're going to find it very difficult to walk past six seven pound tailing bonefish to go gt hunting oh 100%. and that's and, and, and i find but you got to though well, you've got to, yeah. That's what and I'm look, saying. Like, it's, um, if you commit to it, like... Oh, yeah, I didn't put in, put in as many days as I probably should have on the GTs over there. I did okay on the days I, I did do it, but I just found it so difficult to walk away from the bone fishing there um, this particular time because it was just stellar. It was mm. absolutely stellar. I mean, you know, I know I keep going back to it, but... You know, it was just champagne bone fishing. Um, there was plenty of times out in the lagoon there. I was just pinching myself, looking around, going, "Holy fuck, this is—is is this happening?" Where you're in <laughs> ankle deep water and you've got like serious bones. I got dusted by a couple of massive bones. Like I hate calling weights for any fish until you actually get it to hand. But when 
a couple of bones that he hooked go screaming off and actually scream past the guide and his client who's 80 metres away and the guide turns around and goes, big bone, Andy. <laughs> you know you're onto a big bone. And I had, come <laughs> some, I had some of these things pretty close to getting um, to coming to hand, but for, for whatever reason, a couple of clusterfucks and whatever, mm. um, it, it didn't happen. But, you know, um, I mean, my best fish there this year was probably over eight pound. Um, a couple of guys I know there had some genuine ten. How do I know that? Look, we didn't weigh them. We didn't measure it. I've seen enough bonefish to know sort of thing. Mm. Um, and I had genuine shots at on several occasions of 10 pound plus fish hanging up there um, in, in shallow water. Are there any 14 pound bonefish in Christmas Island? No. A couple of guys from at the airport from other lodges sort of, you know, how'd you go, mate? Oh, yeah, I got a 13 pound bone. Oh, really? Look, yeah. I, I, Look I'll maybe say, so, I'll... but no. Nah. Let me tell you okay. something, I'm, and I'm not going to name names. I know someone who went. I've I've seen the photo of one that the guys from that lodge or the people with that lodge called said to him was 14 pound. Yep. I hate having to be the one to say no, mate. You'll, I don't think that one's even cracked 10. I'm sorry. No, I'm so no. sorry because he's no. a, he's a such a nice dude and he's a, and he's a good fisherman, a good fly tire. Yep. He just got caught up in the moment, and you know that sometimes that there's there's people. That might sensationalise things, you know, like um, you know, but that was, I don't know if that's the one you're referring to because I know that one. There was there was rooms on the internet of a 14 pound fish and oh, and just the, recently, yeah, and the photos aren't up there because this dude no. doesn't participate in social media, but he's yeah. a customer of mine, yep. and he um, and I've seen the photo on his phone, and it's a it's a big fish, man. Yep, it, and um, but like you know. He's got his hands under it, and like I, I, I put a rule up against his hands. I said, "This look, you, if you count how many hands you've got across that, you yep. can see right now that that's that, and you could Google that and see that the estimated yep. weight of yep. that, you know." Yeah. Well, we sort of figured out sort of stuff, and and uh, some of the guys who got some really good bones um, actually measured them up on their rod and put a couple of nicks on their rod. So when we came back, they measured them up and stuff. And I'm not talking, I'm talking from like tip of tail to the nose i'm not talking four you know, points yeah you know, you know, and, you know and, what, and, and, and you know what mate um you know what you a, know a, a 10 pound bone is yeah. about 96 98 centimeters yep right so a lot of the fish that that a lot of the good fish that were caught during my season by not only myself but a lot of the other clients um you know we're easily 75 to 85 86 well, so I'm calling them eight pound fish. No well, problems. Sort of I tell you, you know? what, a nine. I can tell you this right now. People are measuring it against their ferrules and stuff. Uh, uh, a nine foot four piece rod. The ferrule is from the butt of the rod to the first ferrule. Yep. They're all the same size. Is is 80, 85 centimeters. Yeah, cool. So there you go. So yeah. you got to get another hundred mil past that. Well, to get a ten pounder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now you've got to get up to one point two meters to be calling out a twelve pounder. That's a, that's a huge fish, man. So then you've got to be up to about 1.3 metres to be calling out a 14-pounder. Yeah, right. That's, that's, a, look, that's the human. Hey, that's the unicorn. The, well, um, the human, like that search for a rising tide. Movie yeah, yeah. Easy, and look, I honestly say, I mean, good old, okay. I mean no, a, a good bonefish, regardless <laughs> of its yep. size, man. Yeah, I mean, if you get something at Christmas Island that's seven to nine pound that's a really good fish over there at christmas island and there was plenty of those caught during my season there's no doubt about that that's awesome i've spoken to some of the more experienced guides Eckus, bob menti tk some of our guides 
And these are guys who are 15, 18, 20, 30 years experience in Lagoon. I've asked them many times, and even as recently as I've just been there, what's the biggest bonefish that you've seen caught while you've been guiding? 11 pounds about where it's at. Yeah, wow, there you go. Yeah, so I don't think a 14-pound, 15-pound bonefish exists in the lagoon. Um, there's some big fish there, but they're 10s, some of the bigger ones. The biggest one I've ever seen was probably close to 11. The biggest one I've ever caught is about nine. The biggest one I saw this year caught is probably around about nine, maybe nudging nine and a half. Um, but look, you know, not, I'm not taking anything away from the guys who are saying that they've caught 14-pound bonefish. They're living the dream. Um, good on them. That's a great fish, and you know, if they want to believe that, that's great. I'm not going to. Well, they, 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 he's, the dude I'm talking about was was quite realistic about it. He doesn't want yeah. to. He doesn't want to sit there and go around telling people it's 14 pound if it's not 14 pound. No, it's just that he was told that. By, yeah, of course. By people who are probably seeking tips or probably, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, you know, of course. or just um, wanting them to tell other people that um, that lodge got a yeah. 14 pound fish. Yeah, you know? so of he's course. caught up in the middle of um, unfair rumors. I would, I would, I would yeah, put it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. It's I probably mean, if you want to go, say, and, yeah. go and catch your double digit bonefish, your 10, your 12, your whatever pound fish, um, and if you want to do that with confidence and, um, you go to Atataki or you go to Cocos Keeling or you go to um, uh, Tahiti or, or something like that. Um, um, you wouldn't be coming down to Christmas Island with a dream of catching a 14-pound bone. Simple as that. Simple mm. as that. Mm. But if you come down to Christmas Island and you want to get in amongst a shitload of fives, sevens, eight-pounders, um, come on down. Love to have you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Love to yeah. Have you. Oh. It's a great place to take a five weight, I reckon. Oh, man, I fished fives and sixes the whole time. Yeah. Um, this season, I encouraged a lot of guys to bring their six weights, which they did, and they fished. They had a great time. Nothing wrong with fishing an eight weight, if that's what you're used to. Yeah, I mean, mm. you, you fish whatever you're comfortable with, but the reality is a five or a six or even a good seven, that's where it's at with Christmas Island. Um, you know, um, yeah, sure, you're dealing with wind. Well, you just work that out. Um, well, you, only you, you, you only fish a suitable line. Well, you fish a suitable line. I still maintain that I've got the, I've got a love for, for and I'm not plugging any particular brand. I'm not affiliated with any particular brand. Well, just between you and me, I mean, about, let's just say, you know, fish a bone, fish taper, whichever rocks your boat. Um, I still maintain that's the best. Um, there's no doubt about that. I still think your redfish tapers type of configurations are not great for the job. People say, oh, yeah, but they help load the rod better. Well, man, just upline your bonefish line by two or whatever the case may be. So if you're fishing, like, for example, I'm fishing a five-weight. I fish a seven-weight bonefish line off that. Um, Look, it, I'll, I'll explain it even further, like, if you don't mind. Like, like The fact of the matter is that it doesn't matter what the fuck's written on the side of a box, grain, load, grain weights, what fish it's intended to be for. Yep. Uh, sorry, uh, tape head design. The physics are what you should be fucking looking at. Yeah, if you're exactly. going around fucking and expecting 20 knots of fucking breeze and fish at fucking 20 to 30 feet, well, then you need those grains out of the rod tip to suit mm. that fucking rod to handle mm. A, the breeze, B, your sure. casting ability, and yep. where the fish is at. That's yep. what you should be fucking looking at in a fly line design. And that's exactly not, right. Not, not what's written on the side of a fucking box. Yeah, so with your short cast, of course, you want less line out of the, out of the rod tip to be able to load that rod. Um, it just makes sense that you're going to upline. It's not, it, no problem. Absolutely. I mean, the sky's not going to fall and you're not going to get struck down by lightning if you're uploading your, your fly rod. And that goes for any scenario, really. How many times have you seen, and I've seen it with fishing as well, you see people go, well, but 
the but I, I'm fishing this line that says it's designed for this fish. That says so. There's a picture of this fish on the side of the box, yeah. and they're having a fucking terrible time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one it's of the a shame. Classics, one of the classics was that uh, a particular brand, not going to mention it too because of whatever, um, put out this line called a quick shooter, bonefish quick shooter, and that was like a little mini shooting head. It was like a normal fly line to a degree. Then it had a thin running line. Um, so everyone thought this is this will be the go. Myself included and a couple of other guys. I remember Neil Cunnington one year had one there. I think there was half a dozen of us who had one there. And um, it was just absolute shite for the work we were doing there. It was just shit. Mm. Um, it was dumpy. It was heavy. It was the sort of line that the F-Shore was designed for probably fishing off the front of a, a skiff in the keys where you're shooting 60 to 80 feet at spooky bones. Perfect for that. Wonderful. Mm. Off you go. But for 30, 40 feet, close-in stuff, it was just garbage sort of stuff. Yeah. So we quickly ditched that one and started going back to fishing just our normal bonefish tapers. But everyone's different, mate. Um, some people well, love love the redfish tapers. You can dick around with your leader construction combos and all that sort of stuff um, to get it right with certain lines. Everyone's different. Um, so all I can say is whatever rod you're used to and you're comfortable with and whatever line you're used to and you're comfortable with to get the job done, that's what you use, basically. I'd love to get back over there and try glass. Actually, now we've got a new found, yeah, yeah, interesting well, glass just yeah. for that short, just for that short cast and presentation. A lot, of guys, a lot of guys were fishing glass. Well, I'm going to say a lot. There was probably at least half a dozen guys who came through that were fishing glass. Yeah, had a great time with it. Fabulous, really, yeah. good. really. Yeah, good. I, I was the same. Really I'm well. sort of looking at this thinking, you know what? I need to get myself a six weight glass rod, take it over there, see how it mm. goes. I think it's wonderful. Lovely soft presentations. Um, you know. Bending right through to the butt, great fun. Great yeah, fun. good so good for if you're solo landing fish too, like to land hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not going to have to high stick and stuff like that. Uh, there was a couple of breakages because of that, um, but yeah, it was it was mainly pilot error that caused that. <clears throat> but yeah, you're right. You know, a glass rod would looks to me, and judging by um, the comments from the guys who were fishing, it looked like to be just such a lot of fun. So, mate, I'm definitely going to line up a glass rod for next season mm. and uh, run with that. The fish, the, the rod I use for my bone fishing anyway is a little bit of a softer rod uh, anyway. Um, it's a it's an XI2 Sage. Um, it's probably a 10-year-old rod, different generation that, but I think I love about it is it's still an extremely, <coughs> extremely responsive rod. It's still classified as a quick-action saltwater rod, but it's got a little bit of softness in the tip, so you can really – hard to describe, but you can really um, play around with your, your final delivery cast in the sense that you can slow it down, you can open the loops, you can close it up, you can even change direction. It just gives you a little bit of a split-second time to be able to do that um, rather yeah. than just having to wind it up. And because it's a fast, stiff-action rod, you've got to drive it hard – no matter which way you go, um, I advocate something that's probably not as super fast, like um, a stiff saltwater fly rod If you for, for bone fishing. I'm a firm advocate of something that's still a nice quality rod um, of a high end or low end, whatever, whatever your, your, your pocket allows you, but just a little bit softer in the tip than your super fast um, saltwater sticks. But even if you do have the super fast ones, like it's uh, like last time I was there, I fished a five weight GLX stream stream dance, right? Not yep. the high, not the high, uh, not the mega line speed, the high line speed one. Yeah, pretty yep. sure. Anyway, um, well, there was, there was one above it. It was high line speed and it was ultra high line speed or something like that. Anyway, yeah. Um, 
I fished a seven weight redfish taper off that line, and I had yep. a fucking great time. It was well. Look, you know, uh, once again, the whole idea of that is you, you, by overlining that is you actually slowing that rod down. That's what I'm. That's the point I'm trying to make is that, like, <coughs> yeah. you know, like that's where I started off and said with your fast saltwater rods, like you can. That's what you're doing. You slow by overlining them and putting more grains out of the rod tip uh, faster. Yeah. You're softening your rod up. Which you are. Is, you're slowing it down a bit. You know, yeah. and I think that's important to be able to do that. Um, especially close quarters stuff. And I call close quarters stuff anywhere between 10 and 30 feet. Yeah. Um, Which is where a lot to... of the fish are caught, right? Oh, it is, mate. Yeah. We had some super spooky days there where the, there's some glass out conditions and you just, you'd be, you'd be wandering along and you'd see a bone at 60 feet away and you sort of automatically think, okay, well, I'm not going to cast yet. I'll just wait till the thing gets a bit closer. So it comes into within about 40 feet. And you start to lift and the thing just doesn't a U-turn and swims back the other way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because they see you. It's super spooky yeah. sort of stuff. But, yeah, look, you know, and our guides won't say to a fisherman, well, it depends on the fishing, the fisherman's capabilities, which the guide, individual, on each individual day, will work out pretty quickly what their client's capabilities are on that particular day. And if they sort of, you know, know that this guy's good to go up to 30 feet pretty accurately, they're not going to call the bone fish at 55, 60 feet at all. They're mm. going to wait till that bone gets in 30 feet and then call it to the fisherman sort of stuff. Um, but there was a few times where you had to bang in 60 feet to some bone fish, especially a good one that might have been swimming away. You sort of think, well, I'll have a Hail Mary on that anyway and see what happens. Mm. And, um, you know, sometimes they came up good, sometimes they didn't. But, yeah, you're right, in general, you're hunting in that sort of 10 to, let's call it 40 foot maximum yeah. and generally yep. in between sort of stuff. So if you've got a, four, a line with a forty foot head and the yep. fish is at forty foot, yep. you're not you're not getting the grains out of your rod tip that is suited no. to that rod that you're buying the line for. No, exactly um, and right. That, and that's and I guess that's the real um, uh, the real thing to take away with line selection. Um, you know, is, is suiting it to the situation that you're fishing, not what the person who made the box is fishing. Exactly right. You've got to tailor make it to yourself and the situation you're fishing. So like we've just just acknowledged in that situation, you're fishing a five rod five weight and you want to be able to put in a 20 foot shot comfortably um mm. you know fish a seven weight whatever over the top of that yeah um, so only having like probably 15 feet of line out to load it rather than 30 feet i don't know if that's how it works but you know where i'm going yeah exactly and that's why yeah. i think um a glass rod would be good because the, yeah. the how 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 closely you've got to match the yeah. line selection up is yeah. Is, yeah. is not as close as a, as a as a fast action graphite no. rod. No, exactly right, exactly right. But yeah, but yeah. as I say, the guys who fish glass, they had a hell of a lot of fun, and yeah. uh, it made me uh, start to get a, get an inkling for yeah, you know what? Maybe I need to take a five or six weight glass over there next time, just mm. have it in the quiver. And I sort of suspected if I did that and I started fishing, I probably wouldn't put it down. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm hearing you. Yeah, I got two glass sure. rods I'm building at the moment. Actually, yeah, okay, I'm just nice. waiting on. A friend of mine to make the the grips uh, the final yep. up. But, yep. And cool. if you're listening to this, dude, like fucking hurry up, mate. It's yeah, been weeks. Yeah, your finger come out, on. mate. Come on. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, God, I'm fanging for it. I haven't <laughs> got the motor for my boat yet, though, so it's uh, doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Cool. But anyway, cool. hey, uh, Andy, we might wrap this up, man. Yeah, We're, cool, mate. We've been, yep. we've been talking now for two hours and 15 minutes. Well, you've been so talking right. for two hours and 15 minutes. Um, I was going to say, same shit, different day, eh? <laughs> you're meant to be tired. I thought we'd get you at a, at a time where you're tired and we, we'd get a word in. Oh, know. mate, I went to bed at like 6 o'clock last night in preparation for this. <laughs> I didn't. All right. I didn't. That's cool, mate. I appreciate yeah. you. Appreciate cool, you putting mate. the, uh, the, the no, effort. Look, yeah, thanks for the opportunity, mate. Um, good to be able to keep you and all your listeners up to date. Recent 
information coming out of the island. Um, you know, all I can say is, from my perspective, and a lot of the guys, most of the guys I had in there, it was a super, super successful season. Um, I just want to say also, which I've said to a lot of the guys already, but if you're listening to here and you're one of the guys who fished with me at the Villages, um, thanks for your coming along. It means a lot, not just to me, but it means a lot <clears throat> to the locals over there and particularly the community over there that um, you all came along and, and you've all played a major part in helping them reset their uh, fishing and the whole system over there. So those guys who I know um, previously to the trip, who I now know after the trip, you know, you all know who you are. Um, again, thank you so much for coming to the villages. And um, next year, 2024, it's already shaping up to be a bumper. I'm probably close to about 70% booked on that one already. So um, don't hesitate to reach out if you want to secure a spot at the villages. Um, find me online. Um, whatever, Chris might put some links or some contact details. Well, you know up. we will, mate. We'll, um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, fine. I'm we'll sure um, we will. we'll um, put all the contact details up on a post. Yeah, cool, mate. Put a put a link into my web page, whatever the case may be, or just give me a call oh four oh eight seven oh eight three four six. If I'm not uh, busy, I will talk to you. If and uh, if you're overseas if, if I, and you want that, just. You, Add plus six one and take the zero off that number. That's, that's the one. That's the one. And if I think you're a dickhead, you won't hear back from me. Oh, that's not nice. What <laughs> no. if you're busy and people think that uh, oh, you're no, not answering no. the phone because you no, think they're I'm, a dickhead? No, I'm only just saying that. Everyone knows. Um, I'll always get back to them. I'm pretty good at that. Um, I was only joking. You can edit that out if you like, but if you don't, whatever. Don't I think care. we'll leave it in. Yeah, good on you. Leave it in. I'll just speak to the editing team and see yep. what they say. Yeah. What did they say? No, I'll have to send them a memo after I've done recording. Um, uh -huh. But, yeah, it goes through a few channels. It'll it'll get there within 24 hours, I'm sure. Yeah, cool, mate. No worries at all. But, hey, mate, thanks for the opportunity. And uh, once again, always good to chat, my friend. Yes, Andy, it was good, mate. And uh, thank you for making the time. Much appreciated. No worries. All good. All right, Tiger, I'll uh, let you go, eh? All right, mate. We'll talk to you soon. Ta-da.
Mecca man This place is fucked Three months go by He had no home He had no food He's all alone I said, throw it once, shame on you 